Welcome back to the 411 Podcasting Network. I'm your host, Larry Zonka, and this is a special throwback episode of the 411 on Wrestling Podcast. You can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, the411mania.com website, and any major podcasting platform. Please make sure to subscribe to our show, share us around on social media, and if you have time, leave us a five-star review on the podcasting platform of your choosing. Joining me today once again is my good friend and fellow reviewer, Kevin Pantoa. Kevin, how are you, my friend? I'm doing pretty great. Anytime I get to enjoy uh, the show we just watched, I'm definitely going to be in a good mood. That's right. Kevin is back, and I just want you guys to know we do listen to you. Um, I have talked to you guys about how we we gladly take suggestions for retro shows. We recently did Ultima Lucha. And people seemed really happy with that. And I had a couple comments. Larry, do more Ultima Lucha. <laughs> and I said, okay. I had already talked to Kevin after we did the first one. And we're going to go back and do more Ultima Lucha. Ultima Lucha Dose, the three-part spectacular, Kevin, 2016. It's interesting to you know look back at this because you can tell how lucha underground had grown part you know the first one was a two-part episode this was a three-part episode with the two-hour finale like it feels kind of like you know it's supposed to like the biggest show of the year wrestlemania um and what makes this even better is that i you know watching having watched all of lucha underground for me season two is the best like start to finish season two is like non-stop just really good stuff season one started a little slow picked up late Season three had a few hiccups here and there, and then we don't talk much about season four. Um, but season two, I think, is just tremendous all the way through. It is. It is my favorite season of uh, Lucha Underground as well. Um, it was one of those seasons where, like you said, one started slowly and picked up, but two really kept that momentum from season Yeah. One. Yeah, everything that they did from Katrina running the, you know, the temple at the beginning to Matanza coming in to the Pentagon stuff. It was just, you know, all the little things were working too. some of the new characters brought in. It was really well done. It really was. And again, you know, Kevin and I have talked about we we loved covering Lucha Underground, not only as reviewers, (laughs) but as fans. It is something we still miss to this day. So we are glad to go back and look on it. So Ultima Lucha 2 starts on July 6, 2016, Hour 1. And the big hook on um, Night 1 is Dario Cueto's for a unique opportunity tournament. And that is what is featured in Hour 1 here and what we're going to talk about mostly. And we start off... With a match that we actually talked about last time. It's a rematch. It's a, <laughs> and uh, I think it's safe to say, Kev, these guys kicked ass again. It is the Machine Cage versus the Mac. Yep. And, uh, of course, you know, Dario comes out before the match. And, like the rest of us, loved the false count anywhere uh, match that they had to open last, Ultima Lucha. And is like, just do it again. Exactly, and that, that's the best thing about Dario, because we've talked about this. He is not the normal authority figure. He is just booking shit that entertains him, and he doesn't care who's in the ring. Because he, I mean, he came out and was like, yeah, I liked it so much last year. Do it again. Like It, it pleases me. <laughs> exactly, and uh, these guys had a killer opener. Willie Mack gets revenge from last year, picking up the win at just over 10 minutes, Kev. It's... 
It's a really good opener. It's a great throwback to the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, just a completely enjoyable match. They have a throwback to the cinder block spot. And Willie Mack picks up the big win. And what did you think of our opener? Um, I thought it was very good. I do, I do prefer uh, the, the first one that they had slightly, but it's very close. If it was like four stars, three and three quarter kind of thing, like it was yeah. very close. Um, I like, like you said, the callbacks to the previous match with the cinder block and everything. Uh, my favorite bit might have been them fighting in Dario's office and Black Lotus is in there, which is just like a nice little storytelling thing. Like, obviously, she'd be hanging out with him, even if she doesn't come out for his announcements. Um, and I love how uh, they use the weapon of the like the portrait or the, the, the picture of like from the first episode. And it breaks in his glass everywhere. And instead of Dario being mad, he like loves that this is so violent. He really does, dude. He, he is enjoying every minute of this. Yeah, like he's not even mad that they broke his one of his favorite things. He's like, look, this is this is great. Exactly. So yeah, it's um it's a really strong, really good way to kick off the show. A nice throwback to the year before. And Willie Mack gets his revenge. And it's um you know, it's funny, you look at where these guys have gone on to. Cage eventually went on to Impact Wrestling. He won the world title. He's reportedly AEW bound right now. He's suffering from a bicep injury, I believe. So he's kind of into weeds right now. Willie Mack also ended up going to Impact Wrestling, just won the X Division title at Rebellion. Mm-hmm. So uh, both guys uh, thankfully moved on after Lucha Underground was done. Yeah. So and uh, the the tournament continues again. This is Dario Cueto's for a unique opportunity, which that is all he says. It's for a unique opportunity because it's Dario Cueto. There's always a twist. That's right, and we get a Boyle Heights bar fight match. Between Son of Havoc, which is for those of you that don't know, is Matt Cross and Tejano from AAA. Yeah. And, uh, the, you know, um, Son of Havoc was always really great because not only is he really good, but he was one of those guys that that crowd took to, like, right away. Yeah, he was definitely, you know, they always called him, like, a fan favorite, and he felt like, the you know, that they called their fans the believers, you know, just seemed to really latch on to him. Maybe it's because he was kind of like, and on the dog, and maybe most of them, I'm assuming most of them knew he was Matt Cross, and Cross has always been seen as a kind of guy who is good everywhere he goes, but kind of gets never gets the the big push. I remember he was knocked off tough enough in like a week. Um, so yeah, it's just maybe just one of those things where you want to rally behind the guy. Exactly. So um, Son of Havoc wins our match, and that pleases the crowd. They are into this, and so we have Willie Mack and Son of Havoc moving on. They won just over seven minutes. Kevin, what did you think of this one? Uh, I mean, it was a fun little match. Uh, they you know, did a couple cool things with the bar gimmick, um, but I do think that, and this is overall for this portion of it, and I'm sure we'll get to it later, it does kind of get hurt by what you brought up in Ultima Lucha last time, where it's like it's all kind of the same thing, where it's, you know, a uh, a false count anywhere match and a bar, whatever brawl it was. The only difference was that it was bar themed weapons. Like it's still a street fight. It's still like a fun brawl. And it's like, those are fine, but you don't want to do too many, especially in a row. Exactly. And that, that is uh, like we said last time I was one problem. They ran into a bit. Um, so the tournament continues. Um, it is the quote unquote finals for a unique opportunity. It is son of havoc and Willie Mack and a false count anywhere match. Now, um, and the problem is, is 
obviously, I think if these two were just kind of left to have a great match, they could have one because they're mm-hmm. both really good. Um, but that wasn't what they were booking here. They were telling a story because there was more to come. And Son of Havoc wins the match. It only goes a little over five minutes. I thought it was, you know, pretty good. I mean, they couldn't really do much in the time frame. So it's not really their fault or anything. It's enjoyable for what it is because these guys are really good. Um, But uh, I was hoping for a little more from these two because I really like both guys. Yeah, I think this was my least favorite of, um, of the three matches. Uh, I do think, again, they made it a false count anywhere. So, once again, it feels redundant. Um, I do think that this would have benefited from having a heel in the finals. Like, as much as the crowd likes the Mac and Son of Havoc, you, it's hard to pick one to choose for because they're both, you know, so popular. If you had maybe Son of Havoc overcoming Cage in the finals, that would have been, I think, a more interesting story to tell. Uh, as you said, it goes five minutes. feels very rushed. And honestly, you could have saved a lot of time. And instead of doing a tournament for the unique opportunity, just done like a fatal four-way elimination false count anywhere match, it would have achieved this, accomplished the same thing. You could even have the same people go over the same people and you know, still get to that same point at the end. Yeah, it would have been nice in retrospect to do something like that. Um, unfortunately, yeah. they just... Uh... That wasn't what we were doing. And again, too, that would have um, eliminated some of the redundancy of the similar stipulations as well as if you just do that in one match. Yeah, and again, it's not like this was bad stuff. It just it could have been handled better so it doesn't feel redundant. Or like I said, I think Cage versus Son of Havoc was a better finals to go with. Yeah. So unfortunately, that did not happen. And that leads to, you know, so Son of Havoc wins and everybody's wondering, what is the unique opportunity? So Dario Cueto and Black Lotus arrive. Mm-hmm. And he has the uh, he wants to talk about the unique opportunity, and he has two briefcases because it's a game show because it's Dario, and he congratulates Son of Havoc, and he explains that one briefcase has more money than Son of Havoc will ever see in his life two hundred fifty thousand dollars. He can take that, or he can take case number two, which contains a contract for a Lucha Underground title match at Ultima Lucha Trace. Mm-hmm. So, Son of Havoc doesn't care if Dario has $250 million. He wants his title shot. And the fans want this because they love Son of Havoc. But Dario says he can have it as long as he wins one more match because Dario Cueto is an asshole only out to make himself happy. (laughs) And then he offers to cash to the next opponent if the opponent can win. And Famous B arrives. He has a new client, and it is none other than Triple A legend Dr. Wagner Jr. Mm-hmm. Which I was not expecting. That's right. So Dr. Wagner Jr. arrives. We have one more match. This son of a bitch beats Son of Havoc in two minutes and totally shits on everybody's parade. <laughs> he does. And, like, okay, so a few things about this. Uh, one, I loved the famous B gimmick, 423 Get Fame. Like, that was so much fun. Like, it was goofy, and you knew he wasn't, you know, like a threat or anything, but he was a zany character that fit perfectly into the Lucha Underground uh, world. Um, Dr. Wagner was such a weird person to vote with him, I feel like. And, like you said, this took the air out of the sails. Um, and I, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, I don't think Dr. Wagner did anything in Season 3. I don't think so. So it's like, it kind of feels like a waste. They should have done... 
a different, either a different person or just so that it doesn't end on such a whimper, have Son of Havoc just win and then maybe lose the title shot at some point in season three because I don't think they were going to run with him in the title match in season three. Um, or it could have just been a unique opportunity for a title shot at, in like a specialty match or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it just kind of felt flat. It was like, oh, we did all this just for that. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think that uh, Dr. Wagner might have been one of the dudes affected by visa issues that came up, mm-hmm. which is maybe why he didn't come back. But yeah, it was really weird. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that is night one, the first hour, Ultima Lucha 2. Kev, final thoughts and a score out of 10 on night one. Uh, night one is a little uh, tough to rate. Um, like I said, I really like Cage Mac. Uh the matches got progressively worse as they went on, though. Um, and like you said, it did, or like I, I was saying, it is pretty redundant. Um, so, I mean, still relatively enjoyable, but probably like a 6 out of 10 if I was going to give it a number. Fair enough. I, I go around a 7 because I love mm-hmm. that opener. I thought it was really, really good, close to grade. I thought the show overall was kind of like a nice um, laying the groundwork for the rest of what was to come. But the other thing is... I thought Dario Cueto was just fucking awesome on this. Oh yeah, he was. I mean, he's amazing, and like, like I've always said, like I don't want an authority figure in AEW, but the only thing I could possibly ever accept is if they brought in Dario for a short run, just to have <laughs> and, this man back on my TV. Yes, as long as he is Dario, you know, don't put any weird spin on it. Just let him be a guy who likes violence. So, but yeah, he, um, the dude was such a good performer. And again, he was a guy that exceeded all expectations because he wasn't a wrestling guy. He was an actor. And it's just, it's amazing what they did with him and how he performed. And I love that guy. So, yeah. So, like I said, I go I go right around to seven, mainly because the strength of the opener, how the crowd rallied around Havoc, even though it didn't end well. And then again, Daria's performance really takes it over the top because that man was glorious. Oh, yeah, he really was. So Again, one of those things I tremendously, tremendously miss about this uh, show. So that is night one. That will bring us to night two, which took place July 13th. Uh, technically episode 25 of the season, Ultimate Leech of Part Dose. This is a more streamed line show. We have two matches on this show. We start off with a Gift of the Gods title match. And for those of you that may not have followed Lucha Underground... The Gift of the Gods title, first of all, you had basically um, qualifying matches to where you had to win a quote-unquote Aztec medallion. And once there was enough people that had won the Aztec medallions, it was usually like seven people, they got put into a giant championship belt. And that was the Gift of the Gods title match. And when you won the Gift of the Gods title, you were allowed to challenge for the Lucha Underground Championship anytime you wanted Technically, as long as you gave Dario Cueto a week's notice to promote it, because he is a promoter and has to make money. Yep. So the Gift of the Gods title match featured Claw, Daga, Killshot, which is Shane Strickland, Marty the Moth Martinez, Sexy Star, Mariposa, which is cheerleader Melissa, and Sinestro de la Muerta, Kevin. (laughs) And they had a long opener. It's elimination rules. They went 25 minutes. And at the end of the day, Sexy Star wins the Gift of the Gods championship and a chance at the championship. Your thoughts on our opener? Um, 
I thought overall it was a really you know fun match. I think Lucha Underground probably better than most companies nailed the big multi man like or multi person matches. You know, just thinking back, like six to survive was really good, or when they did those like tenth way uh, matches, like they just had crazy good. You know, Aztec Warfare was always fun. Um, so yeah, there was a great pace throughout this. I do think Nightclaw was he was hyped as like the mystery like person making his debut, and he it felt super underwhelming. The crowd was just who's this? Um, yeah, good uh, pace throughout. I liked how Mar- uh, Mariposa and Mar- Marty Martinez were working together throughout, you know, it makes sense if they're, uh, you know, with their family uh, dynamic. I liked the rivalries playing off of each other. Killshot and Marty Martinez went at each other a lot. Um, so, you know, things like that. Uh, yeah. Sexy star being, you know, overcoming things at the end, theoretically like works, but sexy stars stuff has not aged well. No. <laughs> you see her like overcome and triumph and you know triumph and you're like oh but nobody likes you you're terrible <laughs> it's like you're such a shitty person <laughs> <laughs> yeah like i don't want i want to see you succeed yeah um i thought it was really good i think the you know the best thing obviously did is the, uh the ending comes down to sexy star and marty the moth mm-hmm. which is again we talk about throwbacks it's a great uh story arc going back to the end of last year's ultima lucha when Marty was kidnapping her and shit like that. And so yeah. that's good. Um, I thought it had really, really good energy and layout throughout. I thought it did fade a little down the stretch, but I thought the story was really good. And again, for the time, like you said, the sexy star thing played off really well at the time, but it doesn't age well because yeah. as we found out, she's like a really horrible person and tried to like rip off Rosemary's arm in Mexico. Cause she's a bitch. Yeah. So, pretty um, much. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it, it's really good. It was a good way to open the show. It felt really important, which was the biggest difference from night one. You had an immediate sense of importance. Yeah, for sure. It, it And again, it made the gift of the gods title which was such an interesting championship in general, but it, again, made it feel like it was important, you know? And sure, other people got title shots other ways, but it was still fun to have that title around to kind of cash it in whenever you wanted. That's right. So um, one of the running storylines through season two was there were undercover police officers infiltrating the temple Mm -hmm. because they were going after Dario Cueto. Uh, Joey Ryan was one of these. Cortez Castro was involved. So we get an angle where they're setting up Mr. Cisco with a wire so that he can help them get the dirt on Dario Cueto. Yeah, and can I say I really was a huge fan of the storyline. It was one of those things that if you're watching the show, you know, if you were in attendance for the show, you didn't really catch on that it was happening. But it was so fun every week to look back. Like, whoever thought to cast Joey Ryan as a sleazy undercover cop, like, that's just a stroke of genius. That's exactly who he should be playing. Um, and he was just so like, he was still, he wasn't over the top, but he was like just weird enough that, um, Cortez Castro would look at him like, you know, he was more the straight man to him. And it was just, it was, it was just really good. That's right. Also the chick that played the, uh, police captain was really good in this too. Oh yeah. Like everything, there wasn't the Lorenzo Lama storyline involved with this too, I think, or. Yeah. Yeah. Councilman Delgato. Yeah. And then, uh, just thinking about it, just like this show had, Lucha Underground has some weird stuff when episode when the final part ended and it went to autoplay the season three premiere the thumbnail was Honky Tonk Man and his random cameo 
And that just, I looked at it and I was like, I forgot Honky Talk Man appeared in this. Yeah, it's it's amazing, some of the stuff. But So basically, they're ensuring um, Mr. Cisco that he's going to be fine, but he's basically afraid that Dario Cueto is going to kill him. Yeah. So, and then the main event of night two was a death match between Mil Muertes and King Cuerno. And real quick, you know, it's funny, we were talking about how um, other people from season one uh, or from episode one moved on to other things. And Sexy Star is pretty much out of wrestling. She's done some boxing and shit. And nobody cares about her anymore. Yeah. So we have uh, Mil Muertes and King Cuerno. King Cuerno is now on NXT. Mm-hmm. Mil Muertes had a bunch of knee problems. I don't think he's really working much anymore. But he was really good in Lucha Underground. Yeah, I, um, you know, um, both of them were just fantastic in their roles. Obviously, Cuerno can still go. Mill blew me away in Lucha Underground because he was terrible in TNA. Yes, yes, he was. He was really <laughs> bad. Ricky Banderas. And I do think that their uh, this storyline itself was uh, really well done because King Cuerno's whole thing was that he's like the hunter. And there's literally no bigger game in Lucha Underground other than possibly Matanza than Bill Morton. So it's like, it was a really cool dynamic. Yeah, and it played out throughout the season to get here. So we have the big deathmatch stipulation, which involves these two guys basically trying to kill each other. Yeah. And that's okay because it was <laughs> awesome. It, it's, uh, I, I really, really love this match. Um, they go about, let's see here, they go just under 14 minutes. And it's um I think it was a really good time frame for them keeping it just under fifteen. I I thought it was pretty great. I loved it. And um you have um uh sorry, Mil Muertes picking up the win. He pretty much goes murder death kill on fucking King Cuerno with like crowbars and a fucking tombstone and really enjoyed this main event. Um just again, these guys they thrived in Lucha Underground. The uh, the Katrina Muertes thing was always really entertaining. And, For sure. Um, like, I wouldn't, you know, I like this match. I thought it was great. It's not on the level of, say, the Muertes-Phoenix matches because those were, like, some excellent battles. But it's a great ending to night one and easily the match of the first two nights. In For sure, opinion. yeah. Um, I would uh, have to agree um, I do think that, I mean, granted, there are points where it is, like you said, they're trying to murder each other. Although I do think with a death match, it maybe could have gone a little, uh, you know, a little more violent. Um, not to the level of Vampiro Pentagon from uh, season one, but I think maybe a little more uh, would have helped to hear. But yeah, really good stuff. Um, I think for me, it's neck and neck with Cage Mac uh, for match of the first two nights. Fair enough. Um, but very good. And. Just, yeah, just a, a great way to close out the show. A much better way to close out episode two than episode one. Like, this felt like a big storyline ending in a great match, you know, versus what happened on night one. That's right. So we get a video package for Pentagon versus Matanz on the finale. We see footage of Vampira versus Pentagon from last year. The reveal that Vampira was his master. Vampiro is very solemn right now. He dumps out his medication that he had been on all season because now he has to prepare his student for the big challenge next week. And it was good to see that they were getting back into that. And we close by going to Dario Cueto's office. Mr. Cisco arrives and he has some totally normal, not wired up conversation with Dario Cueto. He is such a bad actor. It, like intentionally bad actor and yeah, 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 and Dario he knows the deal he finds the wire dares the police to come and get him 
And then he picks up the Red Bull statue on his desk, which we learned during the season he had used to kill his own mother with. Yep. And then he pummels Mr. Cisco to death with it as the police listened on in horror, which was fantastic. And then the show closes with Dario getting on the red rotary bat phone and telling somebody it's time. Yeah. And uh, I just, for, you know, I usually take some notes while I'm doing this, while I'm watching the show. And I just wrote murder in all capital letters (laughs) because like Dario, like it just, it's something that again is wouldn't work in like any other wrestling show, but it fit perfectly into Lucha Underground. Exactly. Again, it's, that's what happens when you, create your own universe and you stick to your own rules mm-hmm. and that's why it worked so kevin night two score out of 10 any final thoughts uh yeah this one uh, i mean n- not much in terms of final thoughts we kind of covered it all it's yeah, two very good matches uh they did what they needed to they granted i don't like sexy star but it you know was everything that it needed to be i'd go eight out of ten it was very enjoyable not like nothing on it was phenomenal in terms of you know being a, a great match um but some very good stuff just an enjoyable show uh start to finish agree i, I go eight out of ten as well and um it, again this like i agree with the sexy star stuff like you you watch it back and you're like oh that's a choice now but i mean for the time it was obviously a good call because of how they were building her um in retrospect it doesn't look great but you know what are you gonna do <laughs> But, yeah, of yeah, course. it's um a definite improvement over night one, which is uh what we're looking for, obviously. And we have the stage set for night two, so we go to night two, Ultimate Lucha, the two hour finale, July twentieth, two thousand sixteen. We start off with um, a video package going back all the way to the beginning of the season to set the stage for tonight and. Uh, Lucha Underground. One of the things they did really do is they did a lot of great video packages. So this was really good, a good catch-up, especially for people that might not have followed quite everything or been a little lost. We have Pentagon meeting with his master, Vampiro, about his title match tonight. And Vampiro is claiming he's not ready because he still has fear. And he talks about how Pentagon has to destroy the man uh, that is afraid uh, in order to overcome everything. He sends Pentagon into a cave. And we get a wacky light show with phantom luchadors attacking and destroying Pentagon as Vampiro tells him to find the darkness. Which leads to Vampiro and Pentagon doing battle. And after they do, Vampiro tells him that he's finally ready because the light has been extinguished and that Pentagon Dark may now take his place. Yeah. Um... Pentagon Dark was never a name that I loved. Uh, it's better than that name that he had when he left Lucha Underground. Was it Penta L Zero M or something? Oh God, yeah, yeah, that was awful. Uh, but I do really, like you said, they always had great presentation and production with their stuff. Uh, Pentagon, you know, like fighting in the cave and all the lighting effects and stuff, all came off really well. That's right. So we open up with a trios championship match. It is. Johnny Mundo, Jack Evans, and PJ Black defending against Drago, Phoenix, and Aerostar. Yes, and I love that uh, they were calling Drago, Phoenix, and Aerostar. Um, was it Fire? It was Fire something and Fire Space and Fury. Yeah, yeah, it's a good, it's a good name. 
So, uh, tremendously fun uh, trios unit there. Uh, they have a 12-minute opening match, and we get new champions as the fucking Lucha Super Friends overcome, and I thought it was a really good opener and a nice way to kick off the show in terms of giving us just a lot of fun action in the ring. Yeah, I was going to say, the way that I would you know classify it is as like the perfect opener. Um, it was fast-paced, it was fun, it had some great, you know, like... Uh, Worldwide Underground, that was their name, right? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, they were like the goofiest heels, like the point where in the match the three of them like stood and played air guitar on the on the titles. Um, you know, they were just perfect for that role, and just and obviously Drago Phoenix and Aerostar are fantastic. They're just all three like super fun guys to watch. That made this exactly what I want from the opener. It didn't go too long. They had a lot of fun spots in there, but never did anything you know, too over the top is to, you know, to steal the show. And we got the, the team that won the titles, the team everybody wanted to see with them. So just everything you could want in open are very good stuff. Yeah. Also during the match, we did have the return of Angelico who had been taken out by Johnny Mundo and his geeks. Uh, they like broke his leg or whatever the angle was. He had a crutch with them and he gets a little revenge, but yeah, new champions and uh, they were the, the, uh, the new champions trio were always so much fun. So I, yeah. I like those guys so much. Obviously, you look at like Phoenix has obviously done a lot of stuff since he's great. Uh, Aerostar is still famous for jumping off of ridiculously fucking high things. Uh, Drago is a guy we don't see enough of in the U.S. I like him. Impact's used him every once in a while, but not enough. Uh, Johnny Mundo back in WWE now after a good Impact run. Jack Evans in AEW. PJ Black hanging out in ROH. So. Everybody moved on to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. And just a real quick note, um, for my uh, Patreon reviews, I did one of an ROH show from 2007, or yeah, 2007, and I had Roderick Strong versus Jack Evans. And Jack Evans is just like this underdog baby face getting destroyed and making the comeback. And I'm watching it like, it's crazy to see him like this because he's like such a good douche asshole now as a heel like on AEW even when he's on dark he's just talking shit to the fans and he's so much fun in that role it's just weird to see him as a babyface yeah it's it is really weird to go back and watch Jack Evans as a babyface because it almost doesn't seem like it's possible yeah because <laughs> he is so good as a heel um you know again back when we talked Lucha Underground and uh Ultimate Lucha won one of the angles going on was the Black Lotus angle and her association with Dario Cueto, the death of her parents, and who actually killed them. And we finally get the Black Lotus Dragon Azteca Jr. match. This yes. was uh, Black Lotus's uh, Lucha Underground in-ring debut. And she and Dragon Azteca work a short match. It goes around four minutes or so. And they're having a perfectly fine match. There's nothing wrong with it. It's it's working for what it is. Until Pentagon Dark arrives. Because Pentagon yes. Dark decides, you know what? Some fuckers need their arms broken. And that's exactly what he did. He came down, he broke people's arms because he's Pentagon Dark and he's fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. And um, god damn it, I love this dude. <laughs> yeah and just his whole promo it goes on forever but it's so good even though he's speaking in spanish the whole time yeah it, it's um it is because the thing with him it's like um 
it, it's the presentation, it's the the change in um tempo and pitch of his voice and everything. It's like when you're watching um, it's like when you watch a New Japan show and you get like a Tanahashi and Okada promo afterwards, and you can tell it's like a really good promo because of just the delivery and how people react to it. Yeah, and that was Pentagon. Like every time he got the mic. Absolutely. Because, like, I don't understand fucking Spanish at all. And this dude was like, I'm like, I don't know what you're saying, brother, but it's fucking good. I get it. <laughs> I believe in it. Whatever you're saying, I'm I'm, I'm down with it. So, uh, but yeah, he, he cuts his promo and he talks about uh, last year he beat his master. Uh, he's not as ready for the monster until he broke Pentagon Jr. and felt the pain of frustration. Uh, but his teacher taught him, um, and t- he took his dark place now, and he has defeated his fears. He's here, stronger and more powerful than ever. Ian is dead and replaced by Vampiro, but Pentagon Jr. is also dead and shattered and is now stronger than ever as Pentagon Dark. Uh, he has no fear, he is not afraid of anything, it is not forgiving, and uh, he kicks ass. He will destroy Matanz Equato, and our title ma- match is next, Dario Equato announces... There must be a winner for this match. But yeah, it's a uh, Pentagon is so good. It's like my the English translation does the promo absolutely no justice because his delivery is so fucking good. Yeah, it's like you read the promo and you're like, this is not he's not saying anything like that's great. But you hear it and you're like, oh, this guy's killing this. Yeah, it, again, it, it's all presentation. So we have the Lucha Underground title match. It's the champion, the monster Matanza Cueto, which... Again, unbelievably enough, is Jeffrey Cobb, um, <laughs> wholesome Hawaiian Jeffrey Cobb. So, yeah, facing off Pentagon Dark, uh, they go eleven and a half minutes or so. The champion, the Monster Matanzaqueto, retains his championship. Kevin, what did you think of our title match? Um, I thought it was good. It was like a, a good war for them to have, considering their, uh, you know, the history with the fact that um, Matanza put him on the shelf, and I like. Dario at ringside, I thought he was a nice addition. Uh, just the little things that he would do, you know, he just he understood how to nail that character in every way. Um, I do think it was a little weird that they did the whole Pentagon Dark thing just to have him lose. Uh, obviously, one of the major things I feel like people talk about with Lucha Underground is that they waited too long to put the title on uh, Pentagon. Yeah, um, and this was a big. This was like it felt like the time to do it. I know maybe you don't want to have the title change hands at every Ultima Lucha, um, but yeah, this was the, a good time to pull it off. You had him as Pentagon Dark, and then he just kind of, a lot of the early parts of season three, I think he kind of just was biding time before his story picked up again. Um, but yeah, the match itself was good. Not great, um, but very good stuff. I really enjoyed Matanza as champion of Lucha on the ground. Yeah, um, the thing that bothered me, and I agree, it's it's a good match, but the problem for me was is when you really start digging in and analyzing the show a little deeper than just looking at the match and stuff, it's technically the third match with kind of a shitty finish. Because the opener actually kind of has Mm -hmm. a shitty finish with Angelico involved. The second match, you get the DQ slash no finish, whatever you want to call it, when Pentagon runs out. And then this finish, Dario tries to get involved for like the first time ever, which leads to Matanza ending up uh, pinning um, Pentagon. So it's like, that's three matches in a row, and it's something that they really didn't do. And it's like, you know, we don't do this often. We could probably get away with it. Except they did it like three times in a row. 
Yeah, it's another case of, you know, redundancies that were necessary because this was a very creative endeavor. Like, it's weird to see this issue, you know, be an issue for them. And I think the other thing that hurts is, like, again, this is the first time Dario really gets involved. And if that was the only kind of shitty finish, so to speak, that you did on the show, it would have meant more. But when you already had the two before that, it it didn't play well. And to back up my point of it not playing well, this was also the first time, I believe, that the temple turned on a finish. Because uh, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. They chanted bullshit at this finish because the finish was bullshit and the fact that, as you mentioned, Pentagon did not win. Yeah, and it, it was, you know, like a case of it just it felt like something I would watch and not to, you know, not to diss it because I do most of the time enjoy it, but it is something that WWE would run, you know, like on a SmackDown or something or one of those B-level pay-per-views, like it's a fast lane finish so you can get the real match at WrestleMania. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's yeah. um, so very, very frustrating in that respect. And that kind of, it starts to take away from the show a little for me. Post-match, Vampire tried to check on Pentagon, but Pentagon basically told him to fuck off and bailed. Basically, like that's, <laughs> that's pretty much how he said it. Uh, so, and that led to Vampiro going back to taking his meds because he failed as the master. Yeah. And next up, we got Taya versus... Talk about somebody else problematic coming up, Ivelisse. Oh, boy. We got Taya versus Ivelisse here, which they had built up for a while. Uh, Taya obviously has gone on to Impact. She had a year-long reign as the Knockouts champion. Has done really well in Impact. Ivelisse pretty much can't get booked anywhere but Shine and spends her time on Twitter complaining that Mia Yim quote-unquote store gimmick. Yeah, and also saying mental health is like not a mental health illness is not a real thing. Like she's just, and it's a shame because this is one of the people in Lucha Underground who I really enjoyed. Like I was a big Ivelisse fan. Her the storyline with Son of Havoc and then Helico in season one was great. I really liked her feud with uh, Katrina. Um, just a lot of good things going on, and then you hear about. I enjoyed her work in Shine and uh, you know companies like that. But then you like find out more about the person itself, and you're like, well, maybe the reason you don't get booked isn't everybody else's fault. <laughs> maybe yeah. it's your own. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe you're kind of a horrible person and should stop that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, that's just like if everybody else is kind of telling you something, maybe you should listen a little bit to it. Yeah, so um, let's see here. Uh, let me go back up. I had the time, and I skipped over it. Uh, so Ty wins at just under seven minutes. Um we got Katrina involved in this match who arrived in her gear and, um, safe to say, Kevin, a gorgeous young lady. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I loved again, her run in Lucha underground. She was so good. And I'm, I mean, I know she's does a lot of other stuff and probably just doesn't really want involved in wrestling, but was really shocked that nobody made a big play to get her. Cause I thought that she would have been, Maybe not as a wrestler, but as a manager role, a authority figure role for somebody. I thought she would have been really great, but uh, yeah, she um, she lives in she lives in our hearts and on these replays and on Twitter. So yep, <laughs> uh, but yeah, she got involved in the uh, in the match, and that led to Taya winning. Um, again, another match with a kind of shenanigan filled finish. Um, an unfortunate trend on this show. Really solid match, but nothing special, I thought. Yeah, it felt like um, kind of like the uh, Tejano uh, Son of Havoc match in that it was a good match 
fine. You know, like they didn't do anything bad. They had some, you know, good moments, but it just kind of would be forgettable. And again, had another questionable finish. Yeah, which is really unfortunate because it's something that they would did largely avoid. Yeah, they did avoid it. So we get a video package for Prince Puma, which includes the disembodied voice of Conan making a cameo because he was dead. And uh, the kind of funny thing throughout this whole feud is uh, considering how close they portrayed Prince Puma and Ray with Conan, they were both pretty chill about his death. Yeah, they were. It was very surprising. <laughs> so the the big match here to close everything up is it is El Rey Rey Mysterio versus the Prince Prince Puma. And uh, unless you're living under a rock, Prince Puma is Ricochet. Mm-hmm. And one thing I really loved about Ray's run in Lucha Underground, while it didn't last super long, was the fact that they brought him in and they treated him, I guess, to keep, you know, because Lucha Underground was a TV series. They treated him like when a TV series brings in a special guest actor that you know is an important actor. Like, a good comparison would be when ER, which was a hit show at the time, brought in Alan Alda, who everybody remembered from MASH. And he had a really great but short arc. But he was treated like a big star. And that's how they always presented Ray. He was never made to be bigger than everybody else, but he was never diminished to where you're like, oh, Ray's just here. Yeah. I, I always liked that. Yeah, it was good booking because like, I think the only person that he really kind of went over that some people would have questioned was when he pinned um, uh, when he pinned Matanza in the um, Aztec Warfare match. But even that wasn't like it was egregious or anything. It was in the middle of the uh, Aztec Warfare. Other than that, Ray was never like, oh, they can't believe that they're just pushing this huge, you know, this big star or anything like that. Yeah, and like, because they did a lot of stuff with him in trios and stuff to help get uh, Puma and Dragon S. Ticket Jr. over and stuff like that. So I, I really enjoyed Ray's run. And I like the story here. The whole story is the prince trying to overcome the king, who is the legend of wrestling. And so we have this main event match, Kev, and it's a. Uh, they go almost 17 minutes. At the end of the day, Rey Mysterio does end up remaining the king, beating Prince Puma. And what did you think of this main event, Kev? Big um, I thought it was absolutely the uh, best match of the three nights. Um, it was pretty much the exactly what it needed to be in terms of being a kind of not a student versus teacher per se, but like a guy. Like the the you know the veteran against the guy who's kind of the next coming of him, like Puma would do things early on. He was kind of cocky early on because he had the speed and the quickness advantage, and then Ray would turn to like his you know veteran instincts to turn the tide a little bit. Um, and I thought that was really good, like back and forth with that. The crowd was split. I like the three two three six one nine chance. Uh, those are kind of cool. Um, I kind of like the. What's the word I'm looking for? The play on the Shawn Michaels, Ric Flair kind of WrestleMania moment. They had like a nice, I'm sorry, I love you moment almost. Um, Puma busting out the 619. Like they had really cool uh, stuff here. Just a fantastic match. You know, Puma looked like he was the better wrestler, but Ray was just wily enough to overcome him and beat him. So it was really good stuff. 
Yeah, um, I love this match. I, I thought it was a great match. I, I'm always a sucker for the, the veteran story, like the old lion going out for one last hunt that you think it's going to be the last one. But this time, the old lion actually got his prey. He he won, and you don't always see that. And I don't know if you'll remember from this same year, Kevin, but this match to me was on par with and felt very similar to the Kushida Jushin Liger match that, that took place earlier in this same year. Yes, and uh, was it Don, uh, Dontaku? I believe so, but they yeah. also had a great match, and it, it's the same theme. It's the it's the younger new star wanting to prove himself against the proven legend veteran, and it's one of those things to where. You know, there was a. I always hated the last couple years of Liger's career that people were like, people like to pretend Liger's still good, but he's not really. Yeah. And it's like, listen, you just think that because he's working a bunch of gentlemen's three six man tags with young lions. Yeah. But the fact is, when Liger did have major singles matches, he still delivered. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the, the benefit of working those gentlemen threes matches because it saved his body for when he had to do big singles matches. Exactly. Like, Liger never shit the bed. And, no, like, even if he did have a match that wasn't good, like, I do remember he had a really shitty match with Tai Chi in the best Super Juniors, but that oh, was yeah. his fault. You know, that was yeah. Tai Chi's fault because it was a Tai Chi match. But the thing is, Liger could still go. And, like, there was a lot of questions at the time, like, could Ray go at a high level? Like, he had a lot of really good tags and trios in Lucha Underground. Mm-hmm. And But the thing was, could he keep up with Ricochet? You know, because Ricochet was one of, if not the best, premier high flyers at this time. And I, I, and I know he's not your fave, Kev, but I mean, this was also the time where coming off of that Ricochet-Will Ospreay match where they were getting so much hype as the next generation of high flyers. Yeah, and that's a match that obviously people are very divisive on. And regardless of my feelings, Tom Will Ospreay, I really do enjoy their series. Uh, the Best of Super Juniors match was really good. I like the Evolve 59 match a little better. Um, but yeah, Ricochet Ospreay, like it was, you got a guy going that fast with Ricochet, and you're like, I don't think Rey Mysterio can do that with him. Yeah, it's stylistically, I mean, Ray is not Will Ospreay. He's not that yeah. young. He doesn't have good knees, and he's just mm-hmm. not that fast. But he I had mean, surgery five times in his left knee. <laughs> in his left knee. <laughs> <laughs> but but the fact was is you know what we learn here is obviously um, Ricochet was a little bit better of a pure worker than a lot of people gave him credit for, and Ray was obviously an extremely smart veteran. He didn't try to do shit he couldn't do. Um, I, I, I almost hate to use the term, but Ray stayed in his lane. Yeah. Because he knew, like, listen, I am not as fast as Ricochet. I am not as athletic as he is right now. But I'm a smart motherfucker because I've been in wrestling for a long time. I know everything he can do. I'm going to work to all of his strengths, and I'm going to do all the cool shit that I can still do. And that's yeah. what they did here, and it's great. And like you said, it is the best match on the uh, Ultima Lucha 2 series of uh, the three shows. It's a very fitting way to end. And again, you can argue the fact that maybe Ray shouldn't have won because he wasn't coming back. But, I mean, he does put Puma over after the match, and it is really enjoyable. I mean, I I love the match. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, like you said, just really well done. And I I remember in my original review of it, I had said it 
feels more special because we didn't know how many of these performances Ray had in him. And apparently Ray now has bionic knees or something and can still go in 2020. Um, you know, but yeah, it was just, it was, it was really cool. And I think it was okay that that main evented over the champ, over the title, especially with the finish of the title oh, yeah, match. Yeah. Um, you just had a match that felt like a big deal was well executed and had no bullshit. It was just two wrestlers having a great match, telling their story and delivering. Agree. And the thing was too, is like, I mean, yes, a lot of times the title match should main event, but they were able to produce Ray versus Prince Puma is something that transcended the title because mm-hmm. they built it up as the King versus the, the possible successor to the throne. Yep, it's like I always hear, if I remember, I think on CM Punk's documentary, that he was saying the biggest show of the year, the champion has to go on last. And it's like, not always. In some cases, yes. Like, it makes, you know, 100% sense. But look at WrestleMania 26. There was no way. I mean, Cena Batista was a big deal, but Undertaker Shawn Michaels had to go on last. Definitely. Um, Nothing against Punk Jericho, but Rock Cena had to go on last at 28 also. Um, You know, it's just some matches are larger than life kind of and again i i know i know we've uh you, you've reviewed the show and I, you've probably talked about it you go back to mania 18 hogan and rock should have main evented that show especially when you see the disastrous reaction to triple h and jericho get afterwards yeah on the other side though if you want to look at it uh hogan sid did not need to many no, no, no. that should have been savage player easily yeah <laughs> Obviously, there are times where you could make the argument, you know, I, I remember back at the um the first AEW pay-per-view, there was a lot of, well, the ladder match should main event because, I mean, it's going to be great. And I, I, I love that match, too. But again, you're also trying to establish the championship match. So it's like there are a lot of times where you can make arguments for both. And there are times when you can defend either one. But yeah, this is a time to where I agree with you. I mean, Ray in this main event, especially when you, even in, at the time, obviously it was the right call, but especially in hindsight, that Ray performance is just so good. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely one of his best like ever, honestly. Yeah, I, I love that. So um, we have Vampiro and Matt Stryker sending us on our way. Except for the fact that Pentagon Dark was not fucking done with shit. He arrived, he beat the ever-living shit out of Vampiro, he busted him open with a barbed wire bat, he beat him down with part of the commentary table that he had broken, and then he just continued to beat the shit out of him, he was biting the bloody head of Vampiro, kicked him in the face, licked the blood off of him, mm-hmm. and then he asked Vampiro if he remembered last year and said Vampiro was no longer his master, and that he was now the master. Mm-hmm. He had wanted to humiliate Vampire and claimed that he would feast on his blood and then kicked him in the fucking head again because he could. <laughs> yeah, that last kick looked brutal. And then he dug the barbed wire bat into his head a little more, kicked him in the face again, and then he just started licking his blood. I mean, what a sick motherfucker this Pentagon is. Yeah, it's, it's a case where it almost seems like they were, you know, granted, I'm sure that they had it planned ahead, but it almost seemed like they all the reaction. They heard the reaction to Pentagon losing to Matanza. They were like, "We gotta do something at the end of the show to, to rehab Pentagon. What should we do? Have him go murder a man in the middle of the ring." Yeah, pretty much. So, I mean, it's a fantastic angle. Um, Vampire sells it well. Pentagon is awesome. I mean, he looks like he is destroying this old man. 
Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what was the worst beating, Ultima Lucha 1 or 2 for uh, poor Vampira, man. Cause... I gotta, I mean, one had like obviously fire and, uh, you know, light. Uh, like tubes and stuff, but two is probably a worse beating because he got like nothing inoffensively. Yeah. Plus, it happened in like a shorter amount of time too. He just yeah. like destroys him. So it was like a two or three minute beating. So and then Ultima Lucha two ends with the good and valiant El Jefe Dario Cueto being arrested mm-hmm. by the crooked police. Yeah, unjust. What a bunch of bullshit. Yep. I totally <laughs> Kevin. So, <laughs> But uh, that finishes up Ultima Lucha Dose. Again, this was uh, July 20th. The dates, again, for all three are July 6, 2016, July 13, 2016, July 20th, 2016. And, Kevin, I believe you said these are all available on Tubi right now, right? Yeah, that's where I've, uh, I've watched them on Tubi TV. Uh, I, Net- Lucha Underground was on Netflix for a while. Um, but once that ran out, I was like, oh, there's nowhere for me to watch it. And Tubi TV has it. You don't need an account. You know, like a streaming service, you don't need to sign up or anything. It's just there to watch. You get ads with it, but it's really like it's like two commercials and then it's right back. So easy way to watch it. Plus, hey, free with no sign up. That's always nice. That's always good because people are always like, I don't want to sign up for anything. You don't. I don't even log in. I don't have a login or anything. Awesome. So that's going to bring us to the end, Kev. Night two overall thoughts and score. Um, Probably the best night of the three. Um, obviously I had more to do. Oh, I don't know. It's kind of tough. Probably another eight out of 10. Um, you know, I had some really good things like the, uh, Ray Puma match. Um, and I really enjoyed a lot of Pentagon Matanza up until the end. I thought the opener was a lot of fun. Lotus and El Dragon Azteca is kind of pointless. And, Ivelisse Taya just is forgettable. Um, but still a very enjoyable two hours. So yeah, I probably go seven and a half to eight out of ten. Fair enough. I, I'm I'm gonna stay. I'm gonna go a good seven five as well. It's um, the opener is really good, and you get that title change, which I enjoy. The Pentagon Dark beatdown at the end of the show is all. Excuse me, is awesome, and the main event is really really great with Ray and Prince Puma. I I, I love that Ray performance. Again, it's you often talk about veterans who they need to know their role we we talk about the new japan dads a lot like there are those rare occasions where kojima and nagata actually get like an important singles match and a lot of the time they deliver but it's also because they stay in their lane because they know what they can do mm-hmm. and and then conversely we've talked a lot over the past couple of years kevin about triple h who triple h has had a lot of great matches in his career we know he's really smart but he goes into mania sometimes with these forced epic matches. Like you don't need to be working twenty five to thirty minutes, brother. Yeah, you, absolutely. you, you really don't have an old man dad fight. Yeah, you know, it's like <laughs> nobody's coming to WrestleMania to watch to see Triple H work a methodical twenty eight minute match. Well, like the worst part is that Reigns match. Where like for part of that Roman Reigns match, Triple H decides he's Drew Gulak and Catchpoint go and evolve grapple fuck. It's like, well, yeah. nobody wants to see this. It's like, it's just like, you are a smart dude. People know that you are good. You've had great matches. Adapt your style, man. And I'm, this isn't like, ha, 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 New Japan is better, blah. But like, again, look at a Nagata or a Kojima when they get that time. Fuck, even better, look at Suzuki. Yeah. Suzuki knows what his role is. He's a fucking murder father. 
You know, and he works his style and it works. But I just, I wish Triple H, when he would have those matches, would just embrace that he is older Triple H. He can still be a kind of badass. He can be smart. He can do a lot of things, but you don't need to go that long, my my friend, you know? So, but um, I love that Ray performance. The thing for me, and this is what we talked about earlier, what hurts the show is you have a really good opener. You have a great final match. You have that great beat on. But you also have, like, four matches with a bunch of shoddy finishes. Yeah. And that's what holds the show back for me. Killed a little bit of the energy. And just seeing the temple turn on that Pentagon finish was almost jarring at the time. Like, I had forgotten about that when I went back to watch. And I was like, oh, shit. I'm like, I do not remember that. Yeah, me too. So, um, but yeah, a good 7.5. And I guess overall... Ultima Lucha Dose, I'd give it a strong maybe 7-5 overall for the three nights. There is a lot of enjoyable things. Unfortunately, some questionable booking choices, which they do a lot of good job of avoiding a lot of the time. So it's really weird to see them dive into that kind of cliche North American booking when they had avoided it so much. Agreed. So, and again, I think that's one of the things that you and I really loved about that show is that it never felt like typical North American wrestling. It didn't feel like Japanese wrestling. It didn't even feel like traditional Lucha. Yeah. That was part of like the charm of Lucha Underground. But I think Ultimate Lucha Dose is good overall. And yeah. again, that main event, though, I think we both agree, the match of all three shows. Yeah, it actually might be the match of Ultima Lucha going back to season one. I um, think so, yeah. Yeah, because like I love uh, Puma Mill is like close, um, but yeah, this is probably better. Yeah, so I really enjoy it. But um, that is Ultima Lucha Dose, and again, guys, these are July sixth, thirteenth, and twentieth of two thousand sixteen. So if you guys want to go back, as Kevin said, it's on Tubi right now for free. Just a little oh, bit of ads, no sign up. Um, again, it, it's it's so much fun to go back and look at Lucha Underground. It's cool to see how. A lot of people have moved on, thankfully, after they got out of those shitty Lucha Underground contracts. Mm-hmm. And um, not everybody is, you know, maybe thriving or being booked well, but a lot of people have moved on. They've made some money. A lot of people have done well. As Kevin said, it's really cool to see that, you know, a lot of people thought after this that Ray may be done because just the litany of knee problems and everything and. You know, he uh, discovered, like, stem cell research and everything, and he has some bionic knees now. And every once in a while, it's still amazing in 2019, 2020, Ray can still be Ray. Yeah, like him and, I mean, it wasn't on the level of Ray Puma, but Ray Buddy Murphy on Raw a few weeks ago was really good. And some of the stuff he did with Andrade last year was really great, so. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really cool to see. Um we love all we love Lucha Underground, Kev. It's um it's still missed to this day. Absolutely. Even when it, you know, had its lesser uh times, you know, it was still just a, such a fun alternative to have. Yeah. And I think that's the best thing. And unfortunately, I mean, people were like, Well, you guys like Lucha Underground, but it didn't do any good business. I mean, yeah, the ratings weren't great and it never it didn't make money. And part of that was is because they could never score the international T V deals they needed. And unfortunately, whoever was in charge could not fucking merchandise to save their ass. They really couldn't. And the fact that you couldn't merchandise fucking Lucha Underground is 
Just, I mean, that should go on somebody's fucking tombstone when they die. Failed to market Lucha Underground. It's like, yeah. how, how do you do that? I, I have it's no like, clue. It's, it's kind of like, uh, it's reminiscent of what WCW said, that Rey Mysterio wasn't a marketable person with his mask. Yeah, it's like, how did you, you not know that this was, you know, how are you that bad? It's It's a shame that, for various reasons it didn't continue on because again, I think the most important thing you said, Kev, it's just, it was such a fun alternative. And I think that's the coolest thing about wrestling because obviously when you're watching WWE, you watch WWE because it's WWE. You're looking for a certain brand of wrestling. If you're a WWE fan, if you're digging into new Japan, you don't expect to see AAA or you don't expect to see WWE. You want new Japan. You know, and that's why people, you know, gravitate to certain products. You know, it's like they have a certain thing that makes them interest you. And yeah. that's what Lucha Underground had. Nothing was like Lucha Underground. That's and, a very good way to put it. It was like, it was unlike anything else. So, and that that, that was one of the reasons I loved it. And that's, I, I never minded when the workload was big because, yeah, I still have to review Lucha Underground tonight, but goddamn, that show's fun, and it's going to be different. It may not be great, but it's going to be different. They're going to do a lot of cool stuff, and I'm going to remember something from that show. Absolutely. So, But, uh, Kev, that is going to wrap up this portion of our show. So before we go, shout out to Twitter and Patreon so everybody can follow your work. Of course. That's uh, on Twitter. It's at the Kevsta, T-H-E underscore K-E-V-S-T-A-A-A. Uh, the Patreon is the same thing, patreon.com slash thekevsta. Uh, just got started on my top 500 matches of the 2010s. Uh, I'm still in the 400 area. Uh, it's available for bronze tier members and higher. So even just a dollar gets you, you know, the list of the 500 best matches of the 2010s. Um, there's also weekly retro reviews, the brand split warfare, uh, Raw versus SmackDown during the Ruthless Aggression era. Um, so yeah, a lot of fun stuff going on there. Good deal. So everybody throw throw Kevin some money in a follow. He'd appreciate it. And um, again, we're enjoying doing these retro reviews. It was fun to look back on Ultima Lucha one and two, and uh, we have some other stuff in the works. So we will uh, continue to do these. We're having a good time. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we are going to jump on to the next segment of the show. So stay tuned. All right, we are back. Kevin is staying with me. We just finished reviewing Ultima Lucha Dose, and we are going to continue with the retro look. We actually had a suggestion on Twitter for this one. Kevin, we are going to start looking at the NXT TakeOver Brooklyn events. Yes, uh, a little retrospective through every time that uh, NXT has come to Brooklyn. If you guys remember, the first three were for like SummerSlam weekend, and if I'm right, the fourth was Mania weekend, right? Or am I mixing that up? Uh, it might have been. I don't remember offhand. but mm, Okay, but yeah, basically, take over Brooklyn. It was, it's an interesting time to look back at. It is. So the first NXT TakeOver um, event in Brooklyn took place, obviously, in New York at the Barclays Center. 15,589 people. This is August 22nd, back in 2015, Kev. Mm-hmm. 2000, and it's an interesting time, too, because if you remember, this was the first time TakeOver had left Full Sail, and this was, like, a huge deal. Like, people now, you know, NXT TakeOver is always at a, you know, a normal-sized arena, but this was a big deal. There was questions, like, could they sell out a big arena? And clearly they did. 
Yeah, I mean, even on SummerSlam weekend, there were a lot of people that were like, oh, they're not going to have many people there. It's too niche of a product. And mm-hmm. Yeah, apparently not. I mean, even with ticket packages, man, I mean, you're still looking at the fact that they put 15000 in the building. And it oh, yeah. was a great takeover crowd. Yeah, I think it was like the the whole the crowd was hot the whole night. They were hot the next day too. Like it was a good Brooklyn was a good crowd that weekend. They weren't like you know super marky or anything like that. That's right. So we open up with Triple H in the ring for the open. He is essentially doing. He's he's now Paul Heyman in the modern times from the ECW time frame. He he has now taken over that. He's the cult leader, so to speak, because. Everybody was loving NXT at the time. He talks about NXT being the change that uh, people wanted and the fans made it an unstoppable revolution. And the lights came on and this place looked fucking awesome. It did. It was a little weird, like, having him just in the ring to start. But like you said, it ended up, like, it made sense and it looked really cool, so. So we open up TakeOver Brooklyn number one with a very special match. We have Tyler Breeze facing off with Jushin Thunder Liger. Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> I remember when this was announced, it was like, what is happening? And this is one of those things that um, Liger had, according to all the stories, Liger had shown some interest in wanting to work a WWE event. And he was friends with William Regal. And his New Japan contract was such that Liger was essentially allowed to work basically anywhere. And he got the invite, he took it, and, you know, we get this special match that, like, it's special because Liger, it's just, you look at the career of Liger, he didn't do WWF, he didn't do WWE, he was, you know, he did a lot of WCW stuff, he's obviously a New Japan legend, he worked everywhere in Japan, he worked in Mexico, but this was really cool and it felt really special and obviously a big deal for a younger Tyler Breeze. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I just want to point out, Tyler Breeze was presented tremendously here. Like, he got the special entrance with the um, all the models, like, dressed like uh, after New York landmarks. It was fantastic. Yeah, kind of a WrestleMania-style entrance for Tyler Breeze, which was awesome. And So, again, it's Jushin Liger and Tyler Breeze, man. And it's just, it's really cool to look back on because this was the one match for Liger. He popped in, he did an NXT, said, I'm good, thanks. And it was really cool. So the opening match, they go a little over eight minutes. Jushin Liger ends up picking up the win in this match, Kev. And we've talked about Jushin Liger a lot, um, kind of like offhand when we do these shows, when we talk about older wrestlers. We talked about him when we were talking about Ray and Ultima Lucha Dose. Just, uh, you know, Liger was 50 years old at the time. And the fact is, he was a guy that he was still enough Jushin Liger at times, but he was also smart enough not to try to do shit he couldn't do. Yeah, for sure. And that kind of was what I, you know, what we got here. Yeah. So, I mean, he's Jushin Liger. He's still really good. Tyler Breeze back in this time frame was also really good. And he hadn't been beaten down by the main roster run. So Tyler Breeze is really motivated here. He is great in this match just in terms of his selling and bumping for pretty much everything Liger did. It was, yeah, absolutely. It was just so good, and it's like um, there's a there's a TNA match where they brought in Muda to work this like cage match, and he's working against like Daniels and Kazarian and a couple other guys. It's like a six or an eight man tag, 
And every time Daniels and Kazarian get in the match, because like Muda is basically a mobile at this point, because it's like 2014 or 15 they did it. Every time like Muda does anything, they're selling it like fucking Braun Strowman's throwing him across the fucking cage. Yeah, absolutely. Just that 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 big legend respect, and like Breeze did such a good job here. It was never like over the top and comedic, say like Shawn Michaels and Hogan. Mm-hmm. It was just Breeze knew what he had to do. He's like, my, my my job here is to work with the legend, make sure I sell all the shit to look good, then get my shit in. And it's great. Uh, we talked about the crowd is great. It's a really fun opening match. I really enjoyed it. I think it's good. Liger picks up the win, and I just, um, one of those matches, that I guess, is exactly what it needed to be, just a crowd-pleasing quality opening match. Absolutely. Uh, like you said, the crowd was, you know, crazy hot for everything Liger did. There's a, there's his famous moment, you know, where he uh, steals the Tyler Breeze pose, laying up on the ropes and doing the selfies. It's like Liger knew exactly what buttons to push to get the crowd to react, you know, to everything that he did. It's kind of weird to think that his only WWE match was with Tyler Breeze. Nothing against Tyler Breeze, but he's just not the guy you would expect for that. Um like you said, ideal way to start the show. Super hot. They never did anything. They never went overboard on anything. The match only goes like you said. I think it was like eight minutes or something. Yeah, it's a little um, over eight. It's uh, like eight, eight and a half. Yeah. Exactly what it needed to be. Like it's the perfect match. Not a five star match, but it's perfect for what it needed to be. Yeah, exactly. Just a total. Uh, it's fun. Is just the best way to put it. I, I really enjoyed it. And I'm an. I, I have no shame in admitting I'm a giant Jushin Liger mark, always have been. Love him to death. I also like Tyler Breeze a lot. Um, I just, like, Tyler Breeze is one of those dudes that got a really shitty hand when he got called up to the main roster, just booked badly in inconsistency. And there were times where you could just tell that, God, he was he, he was almost checked out at points. And I was so glad when they actually let him go back to NXT. Because he's a guy that, when they have a crowd, obviously, not right now, but, you know, when there's crowds, he still gets a great reaction from Full Sail. And Tyler Breeze is a good worker, man, and he's a great guy to work with a lot of those younger guys that are going through developmental and going through a lot of the struggles he went through. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's You know, it's, uh, Liger's just, I don't know, I, I can't really add anything more than that, sorry. So We have uh, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Sean Waltman in the crowd because... Charlotte and Becky wish Bailey good luck backstage. And then we get a promo for Nia Jax coming soon. Unfortunately, she's still here. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I wrote down, like, she's, I've never been a fan of hers. Like, there was a little, a short time where I was like, I get the, you know, I get, like, her role as the big, you know, uh, like, monster of the division. Um, and it was okay. But then they turned their baby face, and that just never worked. And they turned to heel again. She was turning into Big Show. And then <laughs> now she, like, you just have so much proof of her being dangerous in the ring. And then she's the first one to call everybody else out for being dangerous. Um, you know, I, Total Divas is a guilty pleasure of mine. And when she was on there, like, her first storyline, or one of her first storylines was like, I'm going to get into it with Carmella and call her dangerous. And I'm like, who said Carmella was ever dangerous in the ring? I know, like right. that's not a that's not a thing that people say. Like she works a very low impact style. Yeah, really. It's like no offense to Carmella. I mean, I generally like Carmella. I think she's pretty entertaining. But like, you watch a Carmella match. She has a moonwalk, a head scissors, a super kick, and her finish. Like she doesn't do a lot. She's not throwing like fucking masala strikes or anything, man. You know? Yeah, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> she ain't hurting anybody. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like um, 
you know, the Miz. Like, you know, he's a guy that knows how to – he wrestles a safe style, and that's good. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I know it's it's very popular for some people to like to shit on the Miz. But Miz, like you said, he works a safe style, and generally Miz doesn't really have bad matches. And if he does, it's not always his fault. It's a lot of layout stuff to me. Miz is always solid, and then there's oftentimes we've seen where Miz can be really great. Like, he had that, like, feud with Dolph Ziggler. I thought Dad did, did some really great stuff, and he's been involved in, like, there's some multi-man matches. There's, like, him, Cesaro, Sammy, and Kevin Owens, I think, had a match. Absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 unbelievably good. Yeah, so, I mean, Miz can certainly step up. But, yeah, again, he's just one of those guys that people like to shit on. So Yeah, and I never understood it because I've always been a fan, like, of his stuff. Well, everybody has to have their easy targets, man. So, and no, if someone's probably going to go, well, you were just making fun of Nia. Well, yeah, Nia is horrible though. So, <laughs> exactly, Nia is like legit horrible and hurts people. When has the Miz ever done that? Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Like Carmella's, <laughs> you know, like to say Carmella did is crazy because Miz doesn't hurt anybody. Like he wrestles the safe style. Nia Jax is throwing Kyrie Sane dangerously into the corner. Yeah. The only thing Miz does that may hurt people is when he goes a little overboard on the comedy because sometimes it goes from okay to bad really quick. But that's, yeah, like, the yeah. only time, like, Miz would actually hurt you, and it's just more hurting your feelings. So that's okay. <laughs> yeah. A very 2015 match is up next as we have the NXT Tag Team Champions, Blake and Murphy, with yeah. Alexa Bliss. <laughs> and, you know, Blake is obviously part of the uh, Forgotten Sons now. Murphy is just Murphy because he's Seth Rollins' disciple. We have Alexa Bliss there. And they're facing off with... The Vaude Villains. Yeah, talk about a way to uh, date this show. <laughs> Just the Vaude Villains. Um, there's a few things I want to get into before this uh, match starts. Go right ahead. Um, so I was just going to point out that the tag division, um, at this point, like if you go back to the takeovers early on, they were consistently, they were like big time, you know, great NXT title matches. Owen Zayn, Zayn Neville, uh, you know, things like that. And then the women's division was on fire at this point. It always felt like up to this show, the tag division was like the low point of every show. Not that they were bad matches, but I remember, all, sorry, um, TakeOver Our Evolution, where Sami Zayn won the title from Neville and Charlotte Flair and Sasha Banks had this great match. The whole show was good, but then like Vaude Villains and Lucha Dragons was just average, you know? And like that's what that tag, the tag division was to this point. And I think this, uh, not to get too ahead, but kind of marked the turning point. I also want to point out that Alexa Bliss is one of those people who blew her team out, like in terms of becoming the star of the team that she managed. Oh, yeah. um, even though I love, you know, Murphy. Um, and the, my first time going to see NXT live was in March of 2015. And Blake is the only person who up to like two months ago had not left NXT since then. He was still on the roster. Like, Finn Balor's back now, but that doesn't count. He left. Like, Blake just stayed in developmental forever. And he probably would still be there if it wasn't for the pandemic and, you know, certain they need more people that are just in Florida right now. So the Vaude villains were Aiden English and Simon Gotch, who are both no longer with the company. They are accompanied by Leva Bates, who was known as Blue Pants. Yeah. Which is just... She got over kind of ironically with the NXT audience and then they stopped using her and all of a sudden people were outraged because she's so good. It's like, 
actually, she didn't really do anything good while she was there. She just got over for reasons. She got over because she was put, it was a, a funny little thing. And she was put in there with Enzo and Cass who were already like way over and funny. That's about it. Yeah. And to this day, she's still not very good. No, no, she's, she's really not. And, but at least, you know, unlike uh, Aiden English and um, Simon Gotch, I mean, Simon Gotch is kind of employed with MLW, but he's not around much. Leva Bates at least is employed with uh, as a librarian, and as long as she doesn't wrestle much, that's okay. So we have our tag team title match, and the VOD villains win the championships at a little over 10 minutes via pin, and you have Alexa Bliss getting trying to get involved, blue pants chasing her away, Kind of almost botching getting rid of her, which was kind of scary. And oh, we get yeah, absolutely we get the 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 big title change as the Vaude villains hit the whirling dervish, and I thought it was a pretty good match. Like I didn't love it, I didn't hate it either. I thought, as you said, it was better than some of the recent tag matches we had gotten on these shows. But I think the big part is they got the big reaction. But going back even now, I still can't like help but to think is like. Why didn't Enzo and Cass get this moment? Because they were so over. Honestly, looking back, that's my thought on it. Like, I, obviously, now, you know, like, Enzo and Cass were never great in the ring. Um, they're kind of tools now. Um, but just based on the time period, they were super over. Um, and it just, you know, it's like, it, and then they not only were they super over, but they also had the connection to blue pants you know even though they already had carmella like you know they just it was weird that blue pants sided with the vaude villains randomly like i didn't get the crowd popped hard for it though <laughs> but i just i didn't really get it yeah i mean i will say like like you like you, we mentioned the crowd does react really well to it so it does work but it just always felt like really weird that enzo and Cass never got that nxt tag title run yeah, they're one of the teams that I remember when American Alpha got their title run. I was like, oh, look, they didn't miss the boat on them because it felt like Enzo and Cass, they missed the boat on them, too. Also, honestly, on the main roster, it felt like they were way over enough to get it early on into their run. Yeah. So, like I said, I thought this was a, a fun match with the finish works because it got over. And you get the new champion, so it's a great reaction. I thought it was a fun match. I like Liger and Breeze a little more, but again, it's um the show is off to a good start because we're having fun matches and everybody is into it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's clearly working as a show right now. So next up we had Ty Dillinger versus Apollo Cruz, who was coming in off of his uh Uha Nation run and Dragon Gate and on the Indies. Uh-huh. And uh, at the time, a lot of people were really excited for Apollo Crews getting signed because he was a really great talent outside of WWE. And his run has been, unfortunately, what it was yeah. and what it is right now. He's a guy that when they kind of let him shine, he can do it, but they don't seem very invested into him. Kind of similar to Cedric Alexander and Ricochet, who all guys we know can go, but they're also guys that... Yeah, you can say, well, they, they can't cut promos, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, like, here's an idea. You know, fucking give them a manager. Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, you have Zelina Vega being a manager. You're using MVP with Brendan Vink and Shane Thorne. You yeah. can't find something to do with Apollo Crews, Ricochet, and Cedric fucking Alexander? Really? Come like, on. I, it's, it's baffling. Like, I don't understand. Especially now when, 
you know, like even these guys who don't have a ton of personality, you're in a situation where you don't have to worry about the live crowd. You know, there's times where they throw like when they threw Alistair Black, Apollo Crews for like 30 minutes on Raw. Like you could just let these guys wrestle and do what they do best. And they might not even need, you know, like um, the mouthpieces and stuff, at least for now. Maybe you can, you know, get them some when crowds are back or maybe they'll be over enough because of their in-ring stuff once crowds come back. But it's like this is the perfect time to, you know, why would you have Apollo Crews qualify for Money in the Bank and then take him out of it? Got to tell stories, brother. And there wasn't a legitimate injury or anything, right? No, it was just... That's what I mean. It's it's so weird. It's They're telling a story, apparently. Yeah, it's just... It's one of those, like, just confusing things. Like, some people, um, you know, you just hear these... You see them get... They, they don't get pushed the way that they should. And I know people like to be armchair bookers and stuff. But, I'm, you know, we're not even saying, like, make them superstars. It's just use them better. <laughs> like, you're not asking for much. Yeah, and I know someone's probably going to jump on me because I'm going to... I'm going to put all the black guys together, but it's like, you're not using Apollo. Well, you're not using Cedric. Well, you're not using Ricochet. Well, everybody's big thing is they're great in the ring, but they can't talk. Well, you know what? Here's an idea. Why is Malcolm fucking Bivens with the fucking horrible Indian guys? Yeah. Like they're not very good. Put big stoke with these boys. Do something. I mean, just, you could do something because say you put big stoke with them and then they can feud with Zelina and her guys. That's a basic thing right there because you look at Apollo, he kind of got screwed out of winning the U.S. title when he got quote-unquote injured. Cedric and Ricochet never got the win the U.S. title, but hey guys, they're still going to beat AJ Styles one day. Remember that one, please. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's you could do a, stuff there. You could fill time on TV and it would be fun. Let Malcolm Bivens and Zelina Vegas snipe at each other back and forth on the mic for five minutes. I've watched that for like 20 minutes. Hell yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's raw. You know they're not going to get 20, but give me five a week and I'm good. And yeah, then you absolutely. Have Andrade and Angel Garza are great. Uh, Austin Theory is fine. And then you have Apollo, Ricochet, and Cedric who are fucking great. You could do some really good stuff there, I think. Absolutely. So anyway, it's Ty Dillinger and Apollo Crews. Ty was really over at the time doing the 10 gimmick, as we all know. And he wasn't even close to like being as over as he would get. Exactly. And they have a fine short match here that I think my only criticism is it goes about 4.45. Apollo Crews wins in his debut. only criticism is is that, to me, it felt a little too 50-50-ish throughout. I thought it should have been a little more of a showcase for Apollo Crews. Uh, It's on a takeover. I know you don't want to do a total squash. But at the same time, I just think it should have been a match where Apollo shows you all of his cool signature shit and picks up the win. Because, again, Ty was over, and he was going to be fine coming out of this anyway, as we saw. Yeah. So He I, was perfectly fine. Yeah, and I, again, I don't think there's anything you know, technically wrong with it. No, there's nothing. You know, it's like, they work well together. Ty's always been a solid worker. He plays in the crowd well. Apollo is really good. I, I just think it needed to be a little more showcase-oriented. So. Yeah, I could see that, um, especially when you think about I've been, you know, getting ahead since we are going to be doing other takeovers. But I'm pretty sure Takeover 2, Ember Moon debuts, and I'm, I'm like 90% sure she squashes the shit out of Billy Kay. Like, I don't think Billy Kay does much in that match. I get that Ty was, you know, a little better, but he still, he was getting over, but he still wasn't like a guy who was getting a decent push. So he could have honestly gotten squashed there and been fine. Exactly. So... 
William Regal then announces the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic, which was going to start in two weeks and end on October 7th at the next NXT TakeOver special. Mm-hmm. And he said that they wanted to make Dusty proud with the tournament. I mean, that's fine. You know, it, the tournament's been fun every year. Um, I enjoy it. It's a cool way to honor Dusty. Um, I do. It's kind of weird that, like, makeshift tag teams seem to win it more than anybody else. Um but yeah, it's it's cool. They also showed the uh, tough enough final four in the crowd. <laughs> oh yeah, I popped hard for Mandy though. Tough enough. <laughs> yeah, what a show. Like just look at those four. You have uh, Mandy Rose, who obviously is a star now. Like she's doing good. Um, and you got ZZ, <laughs> the Yeti, who went nowhere, and Sarah Lee, who. I would think she's like Blake's. Uh, she had Blake's child, like she's married to Blake or something. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what 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 a fucking final four because you have the Yeti and Sarah win. Mandy and Zizi get signed. Zizi eventually gets released because he's fucking horrible. Mandy is actually kind of on that Trish Stratus trajectory to where she's amazingly hot. She's in shape, and she's slowly but slowly getting better and better. Mm-hmm. And then the Yeti rep- reportedly had a bunch of concussion issues, from what I heard. Really, I thought it was more like I, I, it might have been some attitude stuff too. I might have heard about. There was some of that, but he was also out okay. for a long time and actually like left Florida and went home for a while because he had some concussion stuff going on. Wow. So, uh, uh, I guess when you're that big and either you're working with the wrong people or not bumping properly, that's going to happen a lot. And then uh, the the attitude. I always heard Sarah had horrible attitude issues. So, I don't know. Again, it's hard to tell with all that stuff. But, um, yes, what a final four. Yeah, it's it, clearly only one of them became, you know, notable. Although that season did also produce Sonya and Velveteen Dream, so. That's right. Although, diminishing returns on Velveteen Dream currently, but. <laughs> yeah, he's the guy who is not working well in the empty arena setting. No, 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 no. He desperately needs the, you know, like the crowd. Yeah. So it's uh it's it's kind of crazy. So we have yeah. next up Samoa Joe versus Baron Corbin. Can I tell you that when like I remember a ton of wrestling stuff. Like I can remember random matches on random shows. When this came up, like after Apollo won, I was like, "Oh, it's time for the women's title match." And this popped up and I was like, "I totally forgot that this happened." <laughs> Well, it sneaks up on you because you've had three matches and then you know there's the two title matches coming up. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of so used to most takeovers having five matches. And then here comes Samoa Joe and Football Tom. And you're yeah. like, what? <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. And I want to say like the video package they show before the match, it's my favorite take on Baron Corbin. Because in the video package, he's just like Samoa Joe, this indie darling. He did that. Like, I don't got to pay my dues. You know, I made a phone call. And WWE was like, we'll take you. I'm not worried about, you know, any of these, like, going through the indies or having these great matches. I'm just here to beat people up, get my paycheck, and go home. I don't need anybody. And I think that's such a better, like, character to portray, especially now when, you know, people love their indie darlings or the guy who have the five, who has the five star matches and stuff. Baron Corbin can just be like, "I don't care what you like, I'm just gonna win." Instead of being, you know, the king or the constable or something like, I think this would make him such a better character. That was the better Baron Corbin stuff. And my old coach Jeremy Lambert 
always talked about stuff like that. He's like, he's like, I don't like Baron Corbin in the ring much. He's like, but there are times when you kind of let him be him and he does seem like he has something. But Mm -hmm. then you give him all this scripted king and constable bullshit and it's like, it's just the dirt worst. He's, I mean, yeah, it's wrestling and everybody's playing a character. But he's playing a character that is like no good in any way when he does all this bullshit to where you're having, like you said, you're having him talk here. He comes off as that asshole ex-football player that's entitled. And like, I can get behind that to a bit because it feels more like him. Yeah, it feels realistic. This makes him generally unlikable. Uh, Unlike the, I'm the king, I'm going to roll over WWE. Yeah, the problem, the thing with that too is that one, it's an overdone, like the king gimmick. Okay, we get it. Like it's happened so many times. And, you know, we always hear stories about the best gimmicks are the ones where it's like you, but turned up to 11. I think uh, I remember somebody pointed it out about when Tyson Kidd was running through NXT and with Cesaro, where it was like, this guy's just being a jerk, talking about how much he loves cats and loves, you know, like all these things. (laughs) It was goofy, but it was just him slightly like turnt and it worked and you know there's just so many instances of that like just be yourself but like a more over the top version of it when you go so far off into like being a king or the applebee's like manager that he dressed as like it just it didn't work and i don't want to boo that guy i just don't want to watch him but when i see this guy who's like man forget all those indie wrestlers i'm here i'm just gonna make my money and make you sad like that's a guy i want to watch yeah, if I they want to see him get his comeuppance. Exactly. If they would transition him more into shit talking football, Tom, and then like give him I, I don't know who you pick, but like you give him somebody that's kind of a name. And that, like yeah, give give him an indie name guy that he can mock, right? But the other thing that they always push is this fucking golden gloves background, right? And that's yeah. fine. That that that's a great thing to hype up because it's real. It would be awesome if he's having a match with some kind of indie dude that everybody loves, and they go two or three minutes, and just out of nowhere he fucking knocks a dude out. Yeah, that, that, that's what I mean. Like it's just it's so many better ideas to do because people, you know, now they're like, I can't stand Baron Corbin. He's the worst and all this, and it's like Baron Corbin's not bad. I mean, he's not like a great wrestler, but he's can be great with the character, like as a great heel if. He's given something to actually like sink his teeth into. Um, he was on that net that WWE Network show, Breaking Ground, yeah. where you know they had like the and he was the one guy. I remember I was watching it with my girlfriend, and she just was like, "He looks, he seems very like, uh, like not personal. Like he's not the kind of guy that wants to go up to fans and shake hands and you know talk to them for a while." And I was like, "That's what he needs to be on TV, just himself, you know. He's yeah. not a friendly dude." I definitely think a lot of the problem with Corbin is presentation-based, which is not his fault. Of course, yeah. And it's just like, excuse me, like you said, like dressing like a fucking Applebee's manager for like 18 months didn't help him at all. <laughs> and appearing on, on like one of, the, uh, like a full third of a three-hour show was dedicated to him every week. Yeah, so it's just, they could definitely do more than him. Like, I don't hate the guy at all. I think he tries really hard, but... You can only do so much with bad material. I don't care who you are. Yeah, I remember uh, when I first saw him live, and it was uh, 2015. Um, I believe he wrestled Tyson Kidd on this NXT house show. And I remember we were he was new to NXT, too. 
And I remember I'm sitting with my friend and we're like, I don't really get like, this guy's not really working for me. And the match was good. And then he turned and I forget the insult, but he just roasted a fan in the front row and we could hear it clearly. And my friend turned and was like, this is my guy now. I'm a Maricora guy. <laughs> I'm like, just this let is him my be guy. that more. Like, just let him be that more. That's amazing. I love it. So we have Samoa Joseph and Baron Corbin here. They get about ten and a half minutes. Samoa Joe picks up the win at the end of the day. And Kev, what did you think of this one overall? Um, I actually kind of liked it. Uh, it was you know uh, slower pace because it's like a two tough guys slugging it out. I really like Joe going for submissions early on, or not even just early on, but you know he would transition from one submission to the other, which made sense because it's like. Corbin's the golden gloved boxer or whatever and you know like he can fight but can he wrestle with Joe who's a submission machine and you know Corbin did a few of his own and it was like kind of cool that you know he went that route uh a fine slugfest nothing special I do think the finish was weird because you know Joe chokes him out and then Corbin gets up like almost right after the bell rings as if he's like wait how did I lose I didn't tap out and then they never followed up on this like they just go, you know, Joe goes, I mean, I think they met in the Dusty Cup finals, but, like, that was it. It wasn't like it was a thing where Corbin was like, I need a rematch. Yeah, you would have thought they would have um, followed up on that a little more, and they didn't. I thought, this is kind of a weird match to me. I generally find it really solid and thought it, it kept teasing being really, really good because I liked a lot of the striking exchange stuff, and they did, like, some Haas battle stuff. And that worked. Like you said, it was slower slower stylistically, but it worked for what they were trying to do. My biggest problem is, like, the Corbin Heat segment, which yeah. still kind of lingers on to this day. Like, he <laughs> and Jinder do this fucking, like, half-ass, half-Nelson thing. And it's just, like, it doesn't look like it hurts at all. It's like, you're just holding the dude's arm up and cradling his chin like you're thinking about leaning in to give him a kiss. It reminds me of the nerve hold, or sorry, the dreaded trapezius hold, Yokozuna Bastard, and uh, like the bear hug. (laughs) It's just lazy moves. And I get that heat segments, you know, you're supposed to, you know, you're not supposed to be doing moves that are going to wow the crowd. Like, I understand you're trying to, but you still have to keep them interested. You can't just make me go to sleep, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and that it's it's the uh, it's like the IRS effect. Like that was his his <laughs> like you know, my man would work a one minute squash and still put on two chin locks. I don't understand how he would do that. That that's funny because as you know, Cook <laughs> and I are talking about a lot of the early class of champions and we get a lot of uh, Captain Mike Rotundo, <laughs> so <laughs> to varying degrees. Yeah, <laughs> and once he was IRS, he cared even less. Oh yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. But, um, yeah, th- like I said, I-, I don't find anything really wrong with the match. I just think it's a match that, for me, it kind of teased getting really good but never quite got there. Again, nothing really wrong with it for me other than that heat segment. But, um, I l- like I said, I liked a lot of what they did. I thought the striking exchange stuff was done. I liked a lot of the hossing around. And as you said, uh, Joe's submission work is always a lot of fun. Yeah, and then I like that it played into the, the match. But, like you said, it was good, but didn't really get to that next level that, you know, you would want from these guys. Yeah. So then in the oddest trio ever appearing ringside (laughs) at a takeover event, Sergeant Slaughter, Ric Flair, and a young Japanese woman named Kana were at ringside. Kana with two N's it was spelled. Like, I'm pretty sure it was one N, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> and it's like it's so weird because as you look at them it's like sarge flair you're like oh they're showing legends like xbox and i mean like the nwo earlier and then it's just kana and you're like why is she sitting with them it was so odd and it was like wrestling was getting so fucking weird at this time because you have samoa yeah. joe and nxt and here's fucking kana showing up and it's like really honestly samoa joe like like i get kevin owens and everybody joining but samoa joe was kind of the one that kickstarted everything because joe comes then kana comes then aj's in the royal rumble then nakamura's <laughs> takeover and it's like what is happening in wrestling it is so odd but yes yeah, so obviously kana becomes oscar and goes on a fucking reign of terror in nxt and she was awesome yeah and she's one of the few people that are awesome in the empty arena setting too. <laughs> oh, she nails the like the empty arena setting for her when uh, just the other day when they were doing the uh, contracts or whatever. Oh no, they were on MVP's uh, VIP lounge and Nia Jax music plays and she's just mouthing the words. I'm not like most girls, and I'm like, what is Oscar? Like it's like they just tell Oscar just go out there and just have fun, just be stupid for ten minutes or whatever. She's so good, but. Or uh, there was a, I don't know who posted it, but it was like the same week where she did commentary and Orange Cassidy did. And someone was like, this is my dream commentary team. Just Oscar shouting. Orange Cassidy sitting back. (laughs) Oh, so good. So then Stephanie McMahon came out to the ring to take credit for creating all the women in the world and for allowing them to compete in sports. And thanks, Mom. We appreciate you. And Yeah. But that's okay because that was quick. And then we got a great video package. For Bailey yeah. and Sasha Banks. So a couple the first I do want to point out that when this was happening like live, like, you know, all the you know the uh the four horsewomen got called up except Bailey, I thought that Takeover Brooklyn was gonna be Sasha Becky too. Because Sasha Becky one was so good and oh, Becky got nice. over and I was like, that seems to be where they're building and then when it's like they pivoted when they made the decision to call up Becky, Charlotte and Sasha to like go with Bailey and it worked out because you know, as the video package shows, you had this whole bunch of story you could build on. It just felt like a weird pivot. So I always felt like this should have been Becky's match, even if it worked out, you know, better probably this way. Um, but yeah, like you said, video package is fantastic. By the way, that that Becky and Sasa match is, I've talked about it several times, it is unfortunately so forgotten in the scheme of great NXT women's matches. And, it, I, honestly, don't, and I don't know why. It, it's it, I think it's like it's just it's such a weird time because it comes like before NXT really blew up and started going to these major arenas um, and it wasn't Sasha Bailey because they had two great matches for me honestly if I'm ranking like NXT women's title matches that's number two on the list it could be number one some days with this one I prefer Sasha Becky to the Sasha Bailey Iron Woman match which is still tr- tremendous um, I mean there's been some great ones since Rhea Ripley Shayna Baszler was really fucking good. Um, but just not on that level. Like I wrote it down, Sasha Banks in 2015. Like I don't think anybody. There wasn't many wrestlers, male or female, that were touching her in terms of like quality matches in 2015. Yeah, I, but I love that Becky and Sasha match, dude. It's oh, it's so good. It is. It like you said. I I generally agree with you. I, I like this match we're about to talk about is number one for me. Sasha yeah. and Be- um, Becky is number two, and then the Iron Woman match I would definitely put behind that. Those are. Those are the top three, pretty much with ease. Yeah, and then you can mix things up. Rhea, uh, Shayna, or the four, the when the four horsewomen had their fatal four way earlier in this year, twenty fifteen. Um, there's a couple. Uh, Oscar Ember had some bangers. Um, 
Shayna, uh, Kyrie, their, I think their Brooklyn match that we're going to review soon was really fucking good. Um, but yeah, I feel like those are, you're right, three, like one, two, and three with a bullet. Yeah, so it's, um, we have Bailey, you know, Bailey, the, the great thing about this uh, match is the story is so great because Sasha Banks is the entitled asshole heel champion. Mm-hmm. She comes out in a fucking Escalade with security. Oh, it's so good. Bailey is just, it, it, it the heart of it, the Bailey character was a giant wrestling fan that was just happy to be here. And her big entrance is nothing elaborate other than the fact that her gear is paying tribute to Dusty Rhodes, the one man that believed in her. Yeah, and it's just it's so perfect because it just it's one of those things where it reminds me of Daniel Bryan Triple H at WrestleMania, where Triple H had this huge pomp and circumstance entrance, you know, all this stuff. And Daniel Bryan just came out like, I'm just going to rock these Bruiser Brody boots and just go to work. <laughs> and, you know, or I think somebody pointed it to uh, the WrestleMania mini event last year. You know, Ronda Rousey had a live band. Charlotte came in a helicopter. and Becky was like, well, I'm Becky Lynch and I have cool hair. So it's, you know, it's like certain times it works for certain wrestlers to not have that fancy special entrance. And it does because it just plays into the whole story. And just the basic story here is not only is it good overcoming evil, so to speak, but it is Bailey trying to finally get to the top, defeating this confident and just dominant champion at this point. And Sasha is just throughout the whole thing. And it's really funny when you think about it now because they're on TV and they're best friends and they're good. They're going to feud again, but. Yeah, You know, Sasha is just so condescending and overconfident. And it's great. And you can't help but to want to see Bailey. It, it, like, you want her to win, but at the end of the day, you just kind of want to see her punch her in the fucking face. Yeah, and it, it's one of those things where, you know, like you said, Sasha's so condescending and everything. And you get the sense that, like, why? I know that she was popular, but why did they keep her baby face for, like, her whole main roster run? Like, Sasha Banks is one of those people who's 100% better as a heel. Like, not that she can't be a face, but she just, it's so, it feels so natural when she's, a you know, a villain and she's just talking shit and the boss character is a heel character, you know? Um, so it's just a case where this shows you again, like, why she should be, a, you know, a heel. Like, I feel like Alexa Bliss has done very well as a baby face and as a heel, but Sasha's someone who just, I feel, needs to be a heel. I agree completely. And this match is, it's like, you know, I, we kind of, I kind of joke about, um, Bailey as aunt Pam, the heel, and she does some fine <laughs> stuff as that, but like Bailey at the heart of it should have been one of the biggest baby face stars they had. It's funny because I feel like WWE has taken what I've dubbed like they're, they had like three people who I felt were like the purest of baby face, three or four people who are like the purest of baby faces and they've turned them all healed. There was Bailey, um, Sami Zayn. Like you could just get, like when I went back the other day and uh, for my top 500 matches of decade list, I saw, I think it was like a Money in the Bank 2017 and Sami Zayn is a baby face. And even though he didn't have momentum there, I'm like, God, Sami Zayn is a guy you just want to cheer for. And then Dakota Kai is someone, I mean, granted, I've really liked villain, uh, heel Dakota Kai so far, but she's someone who just felt like such a pure baby face. And even if you look Candice LeRae and Johnny Gargano are like just underdog faces. And it's like everybody who's supposed to be like this pure character is just turning heel. It's really weird because I, I've said this before and some people have disagreed because they don't think Bailey's act played 
well on the main roster. And a lot of that, I think, comes down to presentation, as we talked about with Corbin. Yep. She was never given that chance. Bailey, the way they had Bailey rolling in NXT, if they would have put the machine behind her and they would have actually made the effort, she could have been for the women. And it's going to sound weird. I'm not talking overall scope, but I'm yeah. talking she could have been John Cena like. She would have been the woman that all the people would have done want, wanted to do charity work, to do the make a wish stuff. She would have been that for the women. She really would have been. Yeah, and it's like and you know, like, like you were saying it has to do with the presentation. Uh for example, like the whole reason, you know, it wasn't like Bailey came to NXT and was immediately over. No. You had to build that story where she kept coming up short and then she got the crowd behind her. She got to the main roster and within like four months, I think she only had like one or two title shots where she failed. She wins the title from Charlotte and Charlotte's undefeated like pay-per-view streak at Fastlane through underhanded tactics and just like accepted that she won the title that way. And it's like you just killed the entire underdog story that you can build this character on for no real reason. And then that just that killed her for so long, and it was oh, like she couldn't the, the recover Alexa from Bliss that. feud after that didn't help. That either. didn't help at all. You know, <laughs> I I do really I think that feud obviously had plenty of issues. I think their first match is super underrated at Payback when Alexa won the title in Bailey's hometown. I think that one's really good. But then they had the terrible candlestick on a pole match and the This Is Your Life segment and. It just nobody remembers the one good thing that they did together. <laughs> well, it is hard to remember that one good thing because oh, there's sure. so much bad after. But you are right. Absolutely, they're definitely like you know. It's one of those things where you remember what you see more of. So this fucking match, Kev, is <laughs> this is the chef's kiss of the NXT Women's Division. It is. I'm not going to try to. It, this is not hyperbole to me. This is not only the best NXT women's match. This is possibly the best WWE women's match in history. And I would put it up there as one of the all-time great NXT matches, period. In terms of the work, the story, the emotional investment, the finish, the reaction, the entire package. Uh, I am obviously going to agree with you. Um, This was my 2015 match of the year, my top 100 list. I put it ahead of Nakamura Ibushi, and I think that match is unbelievable, so that should tell you how I feel about this one. Um, I agree. It, I will say not, you know, like possibly, it is 100% for me the best women's match WWE's ever put on. It's the best women's match I've ever seen because, you know, I know that people mention, like, all these, like, J- Japanese, you know, Joshi matches from, like, the 90s. I haven't seen all of those. I've seen some stardom, and that's really it from Japan, and nothing has touched this in terms of everything. You know, total package, like you said, the emotion, the crowd, the story, the in, the the action in the ring. It's just, it's the the perfect, like just everything to me. I remember when I was watching it uh, before this, I had given Becky Sasha the highest rated for a women's match, and then I was like, this is about to beat this, isn't it? And then it just it kept escalating and escalating. Just little things like they had each other scouted. You know, Sasha goes for her knees, the knee drop she does when Bailey's on the ropes, and Bailey countered it twice, so Sasha puts her on the top rope and does it. Just little things like that. Um, Sasha's dive to the outside, the stomping on the on the hand during the bank statement, only to have Bailey turn it into her own bank statement. It's, it's unbelievable. It is, and it's it's all the little things that they do in this match because I mean, there's some spectacular stuff as well, like mm-hmm. Bailey hitting a fucking avalanche, poison Rana. 
Yes. <laughs> like it's like what in the actual fuck is that? You know, but it's like mm-hmm. it's so awesome, and it's one of those matches. They had the story, they had the characters. It starts slow, it plays off of that story, and as you mentioned, like the little things with the handstone spots, the reversals, mm-hmm. but it builds so great as it adds layers throughout, and it's just it it does such a good job of. Going from very slow and low to getting the crowd insane by the absolute end of this. Yeah, it's just like it perfectly builds um, the spot where Bailey, like uh, Sasha, blocks the Rana and Bailey like lands awkwardly on the gra- on the mat. Yeah. I've seen people say like, "Oh, yeah, that's a huge botch," and I'm like, "It." I mean, obviously she didn't land the way she wanted to, but for me, it kind of played into it. Like she couldn't land right because she's exhausted. They've had a grueling match. It's just so many things throughout this that are just great. I like that they didn't overdo the, you know, I hate, I don't really like when matches overdo finisher kickouts and stuff. I think Sasha kicks out of one belly to belly. And then after the poison round, she takes the second and loses. Obviously Sasha had the bank statement, so Bailey didn't have to kick out of anything. Um, it never felt like it overdid anything. It goes, I think like 18 minutes. So it's not overly long. It's, it's everything that I want in a match. Yeah. It goes 18 and a half, man. And like you said, doesn't overstay. It's welcome, but it's like the other thing too is it's it's the opposite of like the muddled forced epics we're seeing lately. Yeah. Because they keep the match simple, the work is generally simple. They tell the story, they give them a chance to deliver, but again, they const- they're building a giant cake. They're constantly building layers upon layers. Mm-hmm. And by the end it ends at the right time, and you know it ends at the right time because of the crowd reaction. Just yep. It's one of those things that works so well. It's a spectacular match. It's a great story. This was another feather in the cap for Sasha at the time who was fucking killing it. This was the big thing that Bailey needed to get to that next step. And this was also at a time where, despite the fact that the NXT women's division was really good... You still had these naysayers out there that women's wrestling can't draw. It's not going to be over. It's not a viable main event, blah, 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 blah. But these two, this was a big fuck you to everybody involved that says yeah. this stuff. And after this match, I know that the next review, the one, uh, the next takeover, which, you know, they headlined for the Iron Woman match was in full sale. But based on what they did here, you could have run that at wherever WWE was running that, you know, weekend. And it would have sold out with that as the main event and just like the Dusty Classic or something. You didn't need a Finn Balor or a Kevin Owens because they became stars, at least definitely like, you know, and you saw here NXT fans would come out to these shows and it, they felt like such a big deal. I remember the next night at SummerSlam, Sasha was in that like nine woman tag debacle Um and obviously she didn't do much because she was probably banged up. If you ever see the poison Rana she takes off the top in slow motion, it looks like, I don't know how she's walking. Um, it looks terrible. But I just remember the whole crowd just wanted Sasha that. Like, they were like, look, we need to see more of this woman who wowed us last night. And just since then, like, she's still, like, she's still, even with a lot of poor booking and, you know, maybe some lackluster efforts on her part, still feels like a big star. Exactly. So it's, um, but yeah, if for some reason you guys have not seen this show, I'm not going to lie. You can skip the matches before this and head right to this match. Yeah. Because this is the match you have to see. It is fucking amazing. 
I mean, we're not, this is not hyperbole, dude. And I understand, Kev, why you would go this over Ibushi and Knock that year. Because if you're going to add in kind of everything, the ending and the story element, I could see that this edge in that eye. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely up there. It's, it's fucking five. It's, it is yeah, fucking the spectacular. It's, and when you were saying, you know, it's one of just NXT's best matches ever, I've only given out, I think, like, five or six full five stars to NXT matches. It was this one, Zane Neville with Zane's career on the line, uh, Gargano Almas in Philadelphia, DIY Revival in Toronto, uh, Tyler Bate, Pete Dunne. So it's like top five, you know, maybe a Gargano Ciampa got one too, but, you know, there's definitely five or six matches and it's up there with those matches. So. Oh, yeah. It really is. And it's just, this one was so fun to go back and watch because, I almost forgot how great the crowd was. Yeah, it's they're unbelievable this crowd. So, but um yeah, this um this is special everybody. Again, if you haven't seen it for whatever reason, and then you get a little kind of curtain call moment when uh Charlotte and Becky come out to celebrate uh-huh. with their pals and it's we get a little group hug moment and it's um it's an amazing picture uh between four women that did so much to build that division. Yeah, and I always, you know, it's kind of interesting now that Becky is such a big star because for so long she was like the forgotten one of the group. Um, you know, she never got the NXT Women's title run on the main roster. She was kind of just Charlotte's friend. And it's it's cool that she's come out to be the top star of all of them, arguably. Yeah, but, um, and again, like I said, this was just a, another feather in that cap for Sasha because she had mm-hmm. that amazing Becky match. She has this one, and then they follow it up with the Iron Man match. And it's just like... There's a reason why people were calling Sasha Banks the best women's wrestler in WWE history for a reason. Yeah, like I know if you you know don't, didn't follow her in 2015, that might sound weird because obviously she wasn't putting on consistent like classics, you know, in 2016 or 2017. And I get that, and she's had some questionable booking, and like I said, sometimes you know her effort wasn't always there, but. Like she would, I think her NXT Women's Title Run might be the best ever in terms of pure quality, because it was like just bang. She had her and her and Charlotte had a like two or three matches on NXT TV that were like takeover quality. Um, she was just she was on another level when I saw her live. She had some ridiculously good matches. Um, she was unbelievable at the time. Yeah, and he Sasha was. In terms of delivering top tier matches, just untouchable during that time. Mm-hmm. Big match, Sasha. Yeah, and I mean this, and I'm not just talking in terms of the women either. I mean, you can put her up against any of the men during that same time frame. Oh yeah, she like was one of, of company. Yeah, she was one of the very best, and she was again, you know, people. I mean, I know Finn Balor did a lot in terms of like live crowds and everything, and he was a big part of helping build the brand, but. I think Sasha also gets lost a little bit in that. Yeah, for sure. Because she was a big star. So we go to the main event of the evening. I know you guys can't believe it. That was not the fucking main event. <laughs> Poor Kevin Owens and Finn Balor having to follow that. The good news for Finn Balor and Kevin Owens was that they were going to have a ladder match. So they had a lot of toys to play with. And they were kind of going to need it. No offense to them after that match. Because... A lot of crowds would have been absolutely dead for this. Yeah, it. I remember uh, coming into this thinking like this might not work because the crowd's gonna just be done with it. But Brooklyn kept up their energy all night. They did. So we have Kevin Owens, Finn Balor, ladder match. 
And like Kevin Owens is a spectacular asshole in this match. It's unbelievable. I was going to say, you know, Finn Balor gets this really cool demon entrance. He has like two or three other, you know, guys like in the entrance. So it looks like he's moving around somewhat like stud doubles, kind of, or doubles or whatever. And he gets this cool entrance. And once he gets in the ring, the camera pans to Kevin Owens. And he has the most unimpressed look on his face sitting in the chair. Like, okay, get this over with now. Yeah, it's uh, so. I mean, obviously, it's Finn Balor and Kevin Owens. It's a main event. They get a little over twenty-one minutes. They get to play with all the toys, and you guys are going to be shocked. But uh, they have a great main event here. Yeah, it's a <laughs> it's a great ladder match. Which I do think gets kind of lost in the shuffle, also because it's on the same show as Sasha Bailey. Um, and you know, more people seem to remember their Beast in the East match. I do think that one's a little better, where you know Finn won the title, but this is still. Very, very good. And then Kevin Owens has a really good match the next day with Cesaro, too. Exactly. So, I mean, it's it's a great main event overall. I highly enjoyed it. It's, it's a good, I mean, it's a great way to end the show. I mean, in hindsight, you can make the argument that the Bayless sasha match would have been the ultimate ending to that show because not only is the match better, but the, the closing angle with the women probably would have came yeah. off especially great. But, I mean, that's... You, you couldn't have predicted that they were going to have this fucking epic match. Yeah, like, even if you know going in, like, oh, they have this great match, like, in them that they've been working on, you know, when they work live events or the PC together, but you just, you can't perfectly predict that emotion from the crowd. Like, you know, when people say, oh, a great match is a great match no matter what, and that could be the case sometimes, but a crowd, a great crowd adds so much to it. It really does. So, like again, so like I said, in hindsight, like it would have been great if that was the ending view, but this this main event does deliver. It's highly enjoyable, and um, I I dig it a lot. It's it's just a lot of fun. Um, they don't kind of, they don't. I guess the best way to put it, they don't go totally overboard in some respects to what they do with the ladder stuff. I think I liked a lot of what they did, but I just think the work is really good, kind of in between mm-hmm. the big beats. And um, again, I mean, obviously, these two guys are really, really good. <laughs> so yeah, it reminds me a lot of uh, not on the level, but because they do a little more, uh, you know, like spectacular stuff. But kind of like the Rock Triple H ladder match at SummerSlam '98, where it's not full of high spots, and they use the ladder in kind of more creative ways. Um, I mean, again, it's not on that level. I do think that Triple H Rock, Rock match is better. But it's one of the more subdued ladder matches compared to, you know, sometimes where we see people pretty much risking their lives every five minutes. Um, and I think that worked for it. It does. And, um, again, I think had it not been these two guys, even if it's a ladder match, had it not been these two guys, I think whatever the main event would have been probably would have failed. Yeah. Because Finn Balor and Kevin Owens are great professional wrestlers. They've worked in front of a lot of different crowds. And I'm sure that they were backstage and they saw what the women did and how they killed it. And they probably went, like, pulled themselves aside and were like, okay, well, we need to drop this, drop this, and add this, this, and this because of what just happened. You know, I mean, they they played to the room. They did exactly what they needed to do. And, um, again, I think a lot of people would have failed coming after that um, Bailey and Sasha match. So it's a, yeah. it's a testament to these guys that they were able to go out there and not only deliver a main event, but also get the crowd back invested. Because just, again, I hate to repeat, but a lot of people would not have gotten that crowd with them. Yeah, and it helped that, you know, these were two guys who were 
there might not have been two hotter wrestlers in NXT on the male side at the time because Finn Balor was the hot new like new thing. He was new NXT champion. He had the demon gimmick. Finn was crazy over. And then Kevin Owens was a few months, you know, after he beat John Cena. And from the time he beat Cena till maybe like toward the end of twenty fifteen, he was on fire. Exactly. So again, it's um it's the right guys in the right place and um it, it provides a great ending to the show. So that is NXT TakeOver Brooklyn 2015, obviously available on the WWE Network if you have not seen it for some reason. The award-winning WWE Network, mind you. Yeah. But um, seriously, if, um, if you have not seen this show and you're short on time, I'm not going to lie, skip forward and watch the last two matches if that's all you have time for. You will not regret it because Sasha and Bayley is an all-timer in terms of NXT. Um, the best WWE women's match in WWE history, and the main event more than delivers, especially having to follow that epic match. So yeah. those are the two things you have to see. Overall, though, Kevin, if you're going out of 10, give me a score out of 10 and any final thoughts. Uh, Out of 10, it's kind of tough. I'd say probably like an 8.5 or a 9. Um, probably closer to an 8.5, especially considering all the like takeovers been at an unbelievable level at times. So, you know, like just comparatively... Um, really good show. It doesn't even go that long over two hours. Um, so that makes it an easy watch. Uh, like you said, you can skip to the last two and really enjoy yourself. Um, but it's not like there's anything bad beforehand. Um, you got a fine slugfest between Joe and Corbin. The tag title match is, it's good. The Liger is, I mean, it's Liger. You got to watch Liger actually. And Apollo, I mean, the Apollo Crew stuff, it, it happens. But for the most part, just a really enjoyable show with the best women's match in WWE history, like bar none. So definitely like the highest of recommends. Yeah, I, I go in 8-5 as well. Um, Again, the main event is great. Sasha and Bailey is a fucking all-timer. You get Jushin Liger on the card. The tag title match, I don't quite like it as much as Kevin, but it has a great crowd reaction for the finish. So, I mean, it's it's a lot of little things that all works together. But, I mean, based on Liger alone, Sasha and Bailey, and the main event, it, it's an easy 8-5. Easy recommendation. As Kevin said, it's right around that two-hour mark. Uh, so, I go 8-5 as well. Uh, cage match comment of score is an 8-7-7. Okay. So, so in, in the more. same ballpark. So, um, I think at the time, I went about 9 on it. Watched it back. I... I like it a smidge less, but it's still, excuse me, easy, an easy recommendation. And, um, just an enjoyable first look back at the, uh, NXT takeover Brooklyn stuff. Yeah. It's, it, it's so interesting, you know, to look back and see how, or like where people have gone since then and just how much NXT has changed. Like, like you said, like I said, remember this was the first one in a big arena and it was like, Oh, could the, or, you know, they might not sell out or it might not be this big of a deal. And, it changed everything because without this show, if this show bombs, NXT doesn't grow into what it is. Exactly. And they certainly don't get attached to any other major events in hopes that they'll sell out because yeah, if this one fails, it's just like, well, we tried. It's, it's not going to work. Sorry, Paul. Yeah. We'll be, a, we'll be a full sale company, you know? So, but yeah, um, again, it's, it's definitely an extremely fun one to look back on. Just the, uh, seeing Liger in NXT, the uh, the pop for the tag title change and then the the last two matches, just a lot of fun and um it definitely worth the rewatch. Do not regret going back to rewatch it overall. 
Yeah, I feel like, you know, that's going to be the case um, when we get done with these. Um, we're not going to really, really regret any of them because I think they're all really good shows. But it will be fun to kind of maybe rank them at the end and see, you know, which one was the best, which one was the worst. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to more. Yeah, I, I think the worst one's going to end up being like an eight or something. So, so. Yeah, so that's TakeOver for you, you know? know? Yeah, Death Taxes and TakeOver pretty much guarantees for the most part. And it's, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, dude, it's um, a tremendously fun look back. Again, like I said, you guys, if you haven't watched it, um, you have to watch the final two matches if that's all you have time for. Um, and, and lower side, I would definitely say you got to watch the Liger appearance cause it's, it's Liger and Tyler Breeze just fucking bumps his ass off for him. But, uh, that is going to yeah. wrap up this look at takeover NXT takeover Brooklyn 2015. Kevin and I will continue on and we will be looking at the rest of these. It'll be a fun time. So before we go, Kev, throw out your plugs for everything. Of course. Uh, so on Twitter, you can follow me at the Kevsta T A G underscore k-e-v-s-t-a-a-a um and you can also uh support me on patreon also at patreon.com slash the kevsta spelled the same way uh really in the middle of my top 500 matches of the decade uh list i do weekly top five list um reviews of retro shows and the uh, brand split wars um i took a bit of a break from it this week focusing on doing uh takeovers and stuff um but it should be back real soon and i'm looking at you know raw versus smackdown during the uh draft in 2002 era so uh lots of good stuff there everyone follow kevin on patreon and tell him his list is shit because there's not enough will osprey <laughs> <laughs> he's actually on it quite a bit <laughs> uh but kevin you hate him I know. And I've already had a, like, I've been trying to rewatch the matches, uh, some of them with it. And yeah, I've already had to rewatch them twice. It's miserable. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, How do we even talk, Kevin? Jesus. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> All right. I want to thank Kevin as always. All right, we are back. It is time for another Dark Side of the Ring re- review, which means Jerome Cusson is back. Jerome, how are you? Uh, Larry, I'm doing fairly well. I, on Tuesday, or Wednesday, I saw that my computer was making a funny noise, and I realized that I probably need to get a new computer since I needed to live. So that's what I've done, Larry, is I bought a new computer. And although my laptop is... Um, kind of working i am uh, i'm gonna i'm doing this through my phone so if i sound a little different if i sound like i'm underwater that is why because i'm trying to minimize the use of use of my computer um as much as possible but i'm here larry i'm here it's it's thursday we're recording and we're going to talk about dark side of the ring and i don't have a lot of positive things to say about the newest episode Ooh, okay then. Yeah, Dark Side of the Ring, the last ride of the Road Warriors. And the Road Warriors, obviously a legendary tag team in the wrestling business. We opened talking about the, the legend of the Road Warriors, a couple of badass dudes. They dominated the tag team wrestling scene in the U.S. and Japan. They were huge attractions, main events pretty much anywhere. They drew a lot of money. We see some old school footage of them. And, you know, they were a draw in an era where the singles matches were the main draw. And that's uh, something that a lot of people didn't expect. But it wasn't totally unfounded because while the Road Warriors were a totally different team and force of nature, you did have tag teams like 
the Midnight Express and Rock and Roll Express, who did draw extremely well in various regions. So wasn't totally out of the question, but the Road Warriors were just a different animal from everybody else. Yeah, and the thing that's amazing to me is that they were a tag team that survived and basically outlasted a lot of their peers. I I don't know if you would necessarily consider the Midnight Express, the Rock and Roll Express, their peers. But basically, by the early 90s, those two teams were almost irrelevant as far as the national stage. But the Road Warriors kind of kept chugging along. And I think part of uh, undoubtedly what helped that is that, you know, they spent a, some time in Japan in part of the 90s. They were in WCW in 96. They came back. Uh, to the WWF in 1997, and they were there for a solid three years. And we could talk about the relevance of the Road Warriors slash Legion of Doom in those years. But basically, they were around for a solid 20 years, and that's not something uh, that you would expect from a tag team that has, I would say, a limited skill set. And that's not to say they weren't good at drawing money. That's not to say that they were that they were bad at their jobs, but. I think if we're being honest with ourselves, I think we can safely say that they were not a tag team that was known for their work rates like the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express. That's extremely fair. Nobody is ever going to call the Road Warriors classic workers. They were gigantic dudes with an awesome presence. They did have power on top of agility. So what they did was special because... Yeah, I, I I use the term. I mean, they were just a force of nature. The Road Warriors came out. I mean, you know, in the eighties, they came out. Iron Man is playing. They are fucking destroying geeks, like in glorious fashion, and it just it worked. I mean, some will call it a creature of the time, but like you said, though, they stayed to some degree relevant for twenty years. They made money. They kept getting re-signed. Well, the thing is, is that I think when they were booked properly, they could draw money and they could be in main events. When you put them in a War Games match, all Animal and Hawk have to do is punch people and toss people, and they can do that. But when you put them in a a feud or something like that, like you're not going to get the best out of them. Like if you're expecting them to work like a like a twenty minute match, it's just simply not going to work. And I think that that's kind of what WWF tried to do with them. And it, and it, and it was, it was not something that was exactly conducive to their strengths. But again, if you like, to me, the best matches that involved the road warriors were the ones that were the street fights, like the Chicago street fight from WrestleMania 13, the war games match, that's probably them at their best, but ultimately like the straight up tag matches, I can't think of, I can't think of the classic, Road Warriors slash Legion of Doom match that they had for any company. Just a straight up tag. I don't think I don't think they really had one. So wait, you're telling me Vince McMahon signed a popular act from another promotion, brought them in, and stripped them of everything that made them good. Yeah, I know this is a major surprise. It's not something that Vince McMahon, you know, Vince McMahon is one of those people who is a, he's a collaborator and he likes to take the strengths of all of his wrestlers and, and maximize that. And that's why he's a billionaire, right, Larry? I, I sure. Yeah. Whatever. Fuck him. <laughs> no exploitation whatsoever. None. A, a good gentleman who everybody loves. 
but yeah, so we, I, I know a lot about the road warriors because they were around when I was a fan and, you know, when I would go back and watch the VHSs, of course, I saw a ton of the Legion of doom, a lot, especially in WWF did not really see them as much in the NWA and the AWA, even though I know that that's kind of where they were able to get their start. And the other thing that's worth noting is the reason that you could draw with the road warriors better is there is a lack of the, the lack of exposure. Like when they're doing two minute squashes on television and that's the only way that you see them or you see them at a house show, it's much easier for those two guys to stay over as opposed to exposing them weekly on Monday Night Raw or SmackDown or whatever brand they would be on because they're going to get exposed. And I think that that's ultimately what happened. And that's why when the NWA became WCW and they weren't able to jump from territory to territory, that's why they stopped being over. And it's the same with uh, with the WWF because they were exposed on TV and on pay-per-views a lot more. And undoubtedly, Hawks, Hawks, Hawks problems played a part in that. But I think that one of the weaknesses of this week's episode of Dark Side of the Ring is they, they blamed the issues that the Legion of Doom had only on Hawk's problems. They did not get into the fact that, let's face it, Animal and Hawk, not the best workers. The overexposure, that's ultimately what led to them not being successful in some of these companies. And that's why a WCW would, could get rid of them in 1990 and 91 and, and get away with it. And yeah, that's kind of where I landed with this documentary. Fair enough. So they start getting into the past of Animal and Hawk. Um, the Minnesota crew, we had Barry Darso on. We had Paul Ellering on. We had Nikita Koloff on. We had Barry Darso on. Uh, Scott Norton. Um, guys from that scene, guys that were involved with their history. And uh, I thought that in terms of getting the quote-unquote talking heads on, I thought they did a pretty nice job. Was shocked to not see Jim Cornette on here, considering how much he worked with him in the NWA. Yes, the one time it would have been appropriate to have Jim Cornette is the time that they don't have him. But I guess it's one of those things where, other than him talking about breaking his leg at Starcade 86, I don't know what else he would have necessarily had to contribute. Well, I just think in terms of... Because, again, Cornette is a guy that I understand not a lot of people like and everything, and that's fine. But in terms of being a wrestling historian, I think, you know, in terms of elaborating on their drawing power and what they meant to the various territories they worked in, um, again, he didn't have to be a big part of it. And I'm not saying he needed to be a part of it. I was just more surprised he wasn't because, in context, he was there at the time of the big boom of the Road Warriors. So. I mean, he's going to be on so many of these other broadcasts. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he was busy ranting and raving about whatever AEW is doing this week. I guess. Uh, they start talking about um, Hawk's reputation in school. He was known as a good friend, but was also a bully in school. Not shocking. Um, his brothers joined the show to talk about him. Um, they basically uh, portrayed Hawk as... Um, a lost soul with no direction before going into wrestling. And Scott Norton gets to talk on this show a lot because not only was he around at the time, but Scott Norton also grew up with Hawk. So a little personal insight there. Scott Norton also talked about knocking people out, and I really wanted 45 minutes of Scott Norton just talking about knocking people out. 
with visual reenactments. That's what I wanted, Larry. That's what I want. I'm not going to lie. I'd settle for 40 minutes of Scott Norton talking about uh, knocking people out and five minutes of him talking about his run as Flapjack Norton in the AWA. I mean, that also works. I just, I think we need more Scott Norton in our lives. I mean, I'm not going to disagree, but um, they talk about the uh, the famous um, Minnesota wrestling scene in Eddie Sharkey's gym. You have Mr. Perfect, the Road Wars, Barry Dar- Darso, John Nord, Rick Rude, Nikita Koloff. All famous names that came out of that area. Um, Hawk and Animal worked as bouncers. Uh, Hawk would basically be a heavy for the owner of the club who was in the cocaine business. And we go, always go back to cocaine in some form, don't we? <laughs> Especially after the last well, so many of these, So many of these documentaries are 1980s related. And it just <laughs> feels like everyone between the years of 1980 and 88 or so... They were just on cocaine, and it was just socially acceptable to do that. And this documentary is no different. Just lots and lots of cocaine. I'm going to be surprised if they do an 80s um, like themed one and there's no cocaine mentioned. Well, it's interesting to me that cocaine is okay to talk about, and they will happily reenact scenes of people snorting fake cocaine, but steroids never get mentioned on this show. Yeah, I was gonna bring that up at the end actually. So <laughs> it's a uh, it's one of those weird things. So they talk about training in Eddie Sharkey's uh, school, which was a boxing ring in a church basement. He didn't show them how to throw working punches, and he didn't smarten them up to the business. Um, so eventually, you get Hawk going to Canada. Ole Anderson brings Animal into Georgia. They're both miserable. They both don't make any money. And they go back to Minnesota and end up going back to bouncing because they were making more money bouncing in one night than they were in two weeks of wrestling. They eventually get... Which hooked- tells you a lot about the wrestling business at that yes. point. So Ole eventually sees them together and they get brought in as the Road Warriors. They head to Georgia in 1993 they animal admits that they were really green. Uh, they're brought in to kill geeks, and right away they're giving the tag team championships. There was supposed to be a tournament, by the way. The story with this is they were giving the they were given the titles not only to put them over and try something new, but the story is that Arn Anderson and Matt Bourne were going to win this tournament. They were actually going to do a real tournament. Arn Anderson and Matt Bourne were going to win this tournament. Except for the fact that Matt Bourne got into some legal issues involving a mother and underage daughter and was arrested and it was made public in the papers, so he got fired. Doink. There you go. So they're given the championships, and the best part is his animals like, so we looked at Olin, like, what do we tell people? He's like, just tell them you won them in a tournament. I, I wish he would have told him to say Rio de Janeiro, but... No, they said the tournament took place in Chicago, of which there is no record of this tournament. I'm absolutely shocked that um, something <laughs> something uh, did not happen in wrestling, and they say it did. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a real shocker whenever, <coughs> they, whenever they lie in wrestling, because people in wrestling don't lie, Larry. They, they always tell the truth. That's right. So this is where Paul Ellering comes in, uh, the pitcher, he becomes their manager on and off screen. He helped 
fine-tuned them and quite literally drew up game plans on napkins at a Denny's trying to teach them the business. And then Animal talks about how the face paint came, the haircuts came, the spiked shoulder pads came. Animal is actually the one who put the shoulder pads together after he had a friend mill the spikes. And um, they, he just, they just talk about how the roadies murdered geeks week after week and how they would often apologize uh, before the matches for him. But basically the rule was as long as you didn't break a nose or hit him in the nuts, it was okay. God bless the 1980s when you could just kill jobbers who are making 50 bucks a shot and not have to worry about it. Maybe 50 bucks a shot. Christ. I mean, I mean Arn, um, Animal wasn't making shit work in like, the loop, so he went back to bouncing. You think he was making 50 a night even then? I think I, I, maybe I was just being generous. The Largo loop, is that what we're talking about? Maybe, there you go. Well, you know... There's some wrestlers today, even today, Larry, there are still wrestlers who, who believe that these kids today just aren't tough enough, even though it's a current day wrestler that said it. Damn millennials, I say. Yep. Good so, old tiny Mike. That's right. So they talk, they talk about the business starting to grow, how the Road Warriors were featured on the Superstation on TBS. They were also working Canada, AWA, Puerto Rico at Paul Ellering's Guidance. Main eventing and staying fresh, which was a point you brought up already in this show. Um, they talk about the famed Road Warrior pop, them traveling to Japan where they were over huge there. And this is where we start getting into the Hawk loved the party lifestyle. In Japan, he would hang out with the Yakuza. He would make big money at the Yaku- from the Yakuza. And uh, basically they implied he was like a strong man for the Yakuza while he was over there. And uh, this is when animals started to get uh, annoyed with him. Yeah, I mean, I guess if my if my tag team partner was working for the mafia, I might have some problems with that. But it's interesting to know he didn't have a moral dilemma about it. He never says that it was because he was doing what he was doing. His concerns seem to be otherwise, which is fascinating to think about when you think about the morality of wrestling. Yeah, I mean, Animal's whole thing was the business. He just wanted Hawk to be straight enough so they could fucking work and make money. He didn't care that he was, like, you know, beating the shit out of people for the Yakuza and walking home with wads of cash. Uh, Animal is uh, not a believer in many things, including the truth. This is a fact. Um, So, it's 1986 now. They're a top attraction. They're making big money. They're becoming stars that sell out buildings. Um, they talk about feuding with the Russians, which led to their babyface turn. The big scaffold match with the Midnights at Starcade, where Hawk works suffering a broken bone in his leg, which also led to a lot of his self-medicating. Which animal, it's just a vicious cycle, brother. Well, I think one of the issues with this documentary is that they are seemingly trying to encompass the entire career of the road warriors in a 45 minute period. And, you know, I looked at the time and it took like 15 minutes for them to get to 1986. And it, that's not a problem. Like I don't have an issue if you are going to do a longer documentary on the road warriors, but when you're 45 minutes in and it's only 1986 and you're still trying to get to a point where you're going to talk about this tragic downfall. I, I think that there were a lot of issues with time 
and and what they covered, what they chose to cover. There was a lot of Road Warrior animal throughout this documentary. And while that makes sense, given you're talking about the Road Warriors, the unfortunate aspect is the Road Warrior animal is full of shit, and he's really not that interesting to listen to. He's not. And that's that does suffer a lot in terms of the quality. Um, so they start talking about Hawk getting... He's really bad now. He's on booze, muscle relaxers, and animals getting disappointed in him. They make it to the WWF, though, even though Hawk is fucking starting to spiral and get out of control. And this is where we start getting some bullshit. They go in, they're signed, and Vince says, allegedly, according to Animal, you can't be the Road Warriors because we have the modern-day warrior and the ultimate warrior. First of all, the bullshit there is they never fucking called Kerry Von Erich the modern-day warrior in WWF. They turned him into the fucking Texas Tornado. They almost never referred to him as a Von Eric, and they shit all over that. The whole reason they signed him. The Ultimate Warrior thing, I can slightly buy. And then they start talking about how they came up with the Legion of Doom as a quote-unquote backup. Which again is bullshit, because if you remember, there was a Paul Ellering stable in 1983, which featured... Arn Anderson, Jake Roberts, King Kong Bundy, Matt Bourne, Paul Ellering, the Road Warriors, the Sheik, and the fucking Spoiler. So the name already existed. Don't tell me magically you came up with this thing when you went to WWF. Yeah, I mean, and it's 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 certainly not the most egregious of the lies. I think we'll get to that shortly, but I think it is it is representative of the things that wrestlers believe and they tell themselves and. I mean, if you were to watch a shoot interview, in fact, check a shoot interview with anyone, especially from this era, this is what you're going to find. And I think the problem is that it seems to me like Animal, I can't, I don't want to say anything about Hawk because he's not, he's not, he didn't say anything in the documentary that was new. So I'm not going to necessarily put this on him, but Animal comes across like a guy who just came to a point where he just believed his own bullshit, that he believed he really was this tough guy that he could go out there and kick anybody's ass. And this is the problem what you get with what you get with Animal and Hawk and even Bill Goldberg is like the the idea of paying dues to me is kind of ridiculous in some ways. But when you look at the way that these guys behave, I can o- I I can almost understand why this idea of paying dues is so important because when they when you don't pay dues you end up with guys like Animal, Hawk, and Goldberg who believe their own bullshit and believe that they're these really tough guys and they can't have their, their reputations damaged. I mean, Goldberg even this year talking about not losing to Bray Wyatt in Saudi Arabia. I mean, that is like this is an attitude that still is going on today in the year 2020. And when Animal, I don't, he didn't really say it this time, but Animal talking about when in 2003 the pop they got when they wrestled RVD and Kane and talking about getting the belts. I mean, it's just ridiculous and it's representative of this attitude of guys who did <laughs> not really have to pay their dues in wrestling and what happens. And I'm not saying that Hiro Matsuda had to go in and break animals leg or something like that. But I think that you do have to teach humility at some point. And I think it is a worthwhile exercise to pay your dues in some way. I think you're right, man. And it's, um, again, it's, um, a lot of this is just 
only in the wrestling business bullshit, you know? It's just... Well, yeah, because, I mean, I think that you get... I think you get a lot of that out in other sports because those are team sports anyway. So I think you, you build that out slowly. And that's not to say that there are not egotistical individuals in sports. And they're, they're certainly assholes and they're very successful assholes. But at a certain point, the rubber meets the road. And these guys, they have to either work within the team or they can't. And if they can't, then they're gone. Like, that's ultimately what happens. Yeah, so we come back to the documentary and The Godfather makes a quick cameo to talk about the time that Vince McMahon and the boys were in a titty bar and Vince McMahon was having everybody hit their finisher on him, including the roadies hitting the doomsday device on him in a titty bar. I wish to Christ there was video of that. Well, didn't the Heart Foundation also hit the heart attack on yes. him too? But I mean, the heart attack's a smidge safer than the doomsday device, which like broke Henry Godwin's neck. Which is weird. They didn't even mention that Henry Godwin's neck got broken by this whole by this move. Well, I mean, that would mean getting into other details, and this wasn't exactly great on details at times. No, and I think that's a real problem. I mean, the Doomsday Device is a really dangerous move. Yeah. I mean, even today, just with the neck and the hitting of the clothesline, like you got to be really, really careful with that. And especially with Hawk, Hawk did not seem like the type of person that was exactly uh, holding a regard for his body. I mean. You could say a lot of thing about a lot of things about J.M. Mark Briscoe, but when they hit the Doomsday Device, it generally seemed pretty safe and like they actually took care of their opponents. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, not only was Hawk you you would say a little reckless, but you have to remember, Animal's the ones pushing up the dude's fucking legs so he backflips over. Yeah, I mean it's it's it is not a move that especially if you're a bigger guy that you uh, you really want to take. No, and Henry Godwin was not the dude to take that. So, nope. This is where we start getting into a little heavier stuff in the WWF. We have Hawks issues getting worse. He would start failing drug tests and miss time due to suspension, which would also take Animal off of TV and off the road, making meaning he would make less money. They start talking about the vicious WWF schedule at the time, Hawk downward spiraling, and this leads to SummerSlam 1992, where they were supposed to have a tag title match, Animal says. Vince gets pissed off at Hawk during a rehearsal because Hawk is out of it on something called Placidils, and they got bumped down the card and out of the title match because Hawk was in no condition to perform. I know you're That's shocked. That's bullshit, right? This is bullshit, right? Like, the Road Warriors were not scheduled to wrestle the natural disasters at SummerSlam 92, right? I, I do not recall that, no. Like, it's weird to me because, like, the WWF, that particular show had two babyface versus babyface title matches. You had Randy Savage and the Ultimate Warrior. The drama was, was Ric Flair going to turn on somebody and there was a potential heel turn, but it was babyface versus babyface. Uh, Bret Hart and British Bulldog, that was the main event for the Intercontinental title. That was also babyface versus babyface. I can't see a world where there were two, where there were three babyface versus babyface title matches. So I think Road Warrior Animal's completely full of shit here. And even when I was watching the, the, the episode, I was like, this does not jive with me at all. Yeah, and I don't remember the specific details of that show, but I'm telling you that, um, I mean, I will believe one thing, that Hawk was in no condition to perform, really. 
Because that makes I mean, sense. Yeah, I mean, the move ended with a power slam or something like that. Yeah. And it's funny because Teddy DiBiase is also in this match. Teddy DiBiase also known for partaking in drugs as well. That's right. So at this point, Animal's getting fed up with Hawk. Hawk no-shows the TV taping back in the States and then quits. He's had enough of Vince McMahon. He quits. Animal refuses to fix things. He's not going to quit. He wants to run out his WWF dates to save face, which led to him teaming with Crush, even though they never did it on TV, until he ended up getting injured. Um, Hawk refused to um, do the rest of his dates because he quit. And this leads to Hawk going to Japan, taking the Road Warriors gimmick with him, and forming the Hellraisers with Power Warrior, thusly pissing off Animal. And I will tell you what, Animal, I've listened to several, several shoot interviews with this man, and he had always talked about how I would never do the Road Warriors gimmick without Hawk. Keep that in mind. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really funny that that this is all going down. And it's it's one of those things where, to me, the 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 best thing for them to do is to go to Japan because just the way that things are done, they're going to be protected a lot more. And the other thing that was confusing to me was, I believe there was a Lloyd's of London yeah. situation with animal and his back. Yeah. He and was out for like, like two years. I mean, he was, I don't think he wrestled from like 92 until like the WCW return. And he was just collecting all that money. Right. For the most part. Yes. But yeah, so I mean, it's just one of those really weird situations, and yeah, I mean, Hawk just—it's—it's it's just so funny to me that everything that is wrong with this team is because of Hawk's drugs. That's the only reason that anything ever goes wrong with this team. Animal does nothing wrong. He is a perfect human being. Of course not. I mean, it's. Uh, you know, they always say that uh, the victors write history, you know, and stuff like that. And he's the last one standing. Well, it's funny because I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, the, the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. But yes. that So that is a movie where it is very clearly shown that Freddie Mercury does a lot of drugs. But none of the other bandmates do a single drug and don't have sex with any women outside of their wives. That they actually try to make you believe that is true. It is not true. Oh, I know. It feels like this is the same thing. You are telling me that Animal never did anything wrong, never did drugs, never did steroids. I think that's a bunch of BS. I don't know, dude. It's a, uh, like I said, it's just one of those things to where you're allowed to write your history and everything when you're the last one standing. <laughs> it's, it's unfortunate because. He, you know, Animal paints the picture exactly kind of how he wants to. And, you know, Paul Ellering just kind of is like, yeah, okay. I guess. It's fine. (laughs) Okay. Everything's fine. Yeah, it's like I would have liked for him to, I don't know, maybe say something a little different. But what are you going to do? It's, um, again, that's uh, what we have left, so. Yeah, Animal goes out of the business for a while with a back issue, which leads to Paul Ellering being out of the business while Hawk is in Japan. He starts spiraling out of control again with various overdoses, car wrecks, and he gets hepatitis C, 
which Animal speculates he got from sharing needles. Not from steroids, of course. Because that's a bad word. Because we don't bring up steroids on Dark Side of the Ring. And uh, he then got over hepatitis C and recovered and then went back to partying. You know, good, good news. They totally skip over the 1996 WCW return and say they magically returned to the WWF in 1997. And this is where Draws enters the picture. And basically they admit that Draws was um, brought in as an, an added to the team as an insurance policy. Because they couldn't trust Hawk. Go figure. This leads to Hawk's real-life issues becoming an angle on TV, draws an animal, turn on Hawk, and we get the famed Titantron angle where draws, quote-unquote, shoves Hawk off of it. Animal says he didn't want to do the angle, it bothered him, and that everybody hated it. Go ahead, Larry. Okay. Um, yeah, so... And that angle was shit, though. Not blaming them. Um, they leave the WWF. They go start working, like, in Australia. Hawk got a lot of party essentials while he was there, they say. Was up for two days doing coke and muscle relaxers. He passes out before a show. EMTs arrive because he almost strokes out. And, of course, because Hawk is a pro wrestler, he has Animal get him out of the hospital after two days because he doesn't want to die there. They leave against medical advice. And um, they get back to L.A. where Animal leaves him on his own. I mean, the second half of this documentary just goes completely off the rails. And it's kind of fitting because Hawk is very clearly going off the rails. And part of the unfortunate aspect of this is that they're trying to cover so much in a short amount of time and there's no depth to any of it and they even included Hawk's family at certain parts and they didn't really contribute a lot and I understand why they included Hawk's family but basically you saw them at the beginning you saw them at the end and that's about it so I don't know really what to say at this point because I think that there is a great story to be told but when you're not going into any depth and you refuse to use the steroids and talk about steroids, I think that is, that is deeply problematic in my view. It is. And it's, it's weird. Cause I was, I had higher hopes for this one, you know, and it, I mean, apparently enough people watched it and liked it. It did rather well in the numbers, but getting back to this, I mean, and, of course, that means nothing because how many highly rated Raw shows have you seen that aren't any good? So, Anyway, going back to this, Animal kind of looks to go out on his own. He gets involved with the Christian Power Team, and that leads to him bringing Hawk to a meeting. Hawk finds religion. He gets baptized. He starts turning his life around. He gets married and was happy. Um, he and his wife are moving out of a house into a new place. He had been moving heavy furniture. He felt bad and went to lay down, and this is what basically leads to his death at the age of 46. I like Animal had to be very clear, though. He wasn't doing any drugs, though. It's just, uh, you know, things accumulated. Yeah, no shit. You think his fucking heart exploded between the drugs and all the steroids? 
Yeah, I mean, that's the unfortunate aspect of it is that that is ultimately why he passed away because, I mean, it was probably a combination of things. And I am sure that there are instances of a 46-year-old passing away because of reasons. Sometimes these things just happen, but there's enough evidence to suggest that this is not the only reason that it went down. And to pretend otherwise is kind of ridiculous. It, it really is. So they talk about Animal and Paul Ellering being devastated at his death. Paul Ellering still actually owned the old black van that he used to drive the, the uh, Road Warriors around in. Got it all ready and drove it to the funeral in Florida from fucking Minnesota. Very slowly, he says, going 55 with everybody on the earth passing them. And talks about his eulogy, losing a brother and a friend, and was glad that he met um, Hawk on the struggle of life. In the struggle of life, so. Um, and they kind of close by talking about Hawk's uniqueness, um, that he was still mic to his brothers, he was loved by his friends. Ellering said everybody liked to be around him, he and Animal were like brothers, they loved each other, and they fought like brothers, but they respected each other at the end of the day. Animal feels Hawk should be remembered as part of the greatest tag team in wrestling history. And then says, a part of the wrestling business died along with him. And that is what closes up this show. I don't know. It's one of those things where if you want to make the argument that it's kind of an end era ending thing, then that's fine. But in my view... You know, there were so many times, especially in the first decade of this century, you almost couldn't go a month without a wrestler dying at the age of 45, 46, even younger than that. And that is not a good time to be a wrestling fan because a lot of your favorite wrestlers passed away because of drugs, because of steroids, because of all these things. And... If you want to say that an era died when Hawk died, that's fine. But I think we've gotten to a point, and this is not me believing WWE spin. I, I see the evidence. There are a lot less drugs in WWE right now. And whatever, if they're doing, they're probably not doing steroids. They're probably doing things that are far more advanced at this point, whatever, HGH or whatever. So, yes, it sucks that Hawk died. But we've gotten to a point where we're not wrestlers are not dying every single week because of drugs and steroids. And that was an era that where these guys lived hard and they played hard. And, you know, we're at a point where we see a lot. This is what a lot of these dark side of the ring stories are about. It's something involving drugs. It's involving steroids. It's involving cigarettes in the case of Dino Bravo and I think it's very educational for wrestlers at this point to see this because they know how not to act and they know that doing drugs is fucking stupid. And when Hawk was doing what he was doing, this the, he was making very poor decisions. And he's not the only one. There are a lot of people that are making poor decisions at this point. But I don't think we should necessarily be treating these guys as heroes. I think we need to look at these men as, as human beings who certainly made a lot of money and certainly created a tremendous ambiance. But at the end of the day, they made a lot of very poor decisions and Hawk did not get to live out the rest of his life. And animal is a man who is very much stuck in the past. 
Very much so. So something we alluded to earlier is one thing they do not even address at all is steroids. They do not talk about steroids. They talk about how the Road Warriors were all jacked up and big and powerful and looked great. But there's never one inkling of steroid talk. And that is deeply problematic because I don't know what it is. I'm really trying to figure out why they're not talking about it because they didn't talk about it with Dino Bravo. They didn't really talk about it with Chris Benoit a a lot. So I'm wondering what the deal is. Is there a specific reason why they're not talking about steroids? Because it's deeply disturbing and it is a gross misrepresentation of this era because a lot of the guys were doing steroids. Bret Hart was doing, Bret Hart admits that he did steroids at this point. So it's it's very it's deeply disturbing to me. Yeah, it, it bothers me too because again we're talking to time frame and like you said, they have no problem having Herb Abrams dive into a fake pile of coke in a recreation. But God forbid we see a syringe sitting around and talk about possible steroid use. It feels really weird, and it's one of the things they've dropped the ball on in terms of this season, which I think a lot of this season has been great, and I've liked it better in season one, but it's just, I don't know, man. I I think that if you're to tell the story, just fucking tell the story. He was doing drugs. He was partying. He almost died several times. What is the big fucking deal with saying, oh, by the way, you know, he did steroids, too, to stay that jacked? Well, the show is also called Dark Side of the Ring. Are we going to explore the dark side or not? I mean, steroids are part of the dark side of this business. It is a huge reason for why pro wrestling was perhaps as popular as it was. It was a part of that time period. It start, it, you know, it starts at the top with Hulk Hogan, and it goes through the WWF, through the NWA. This is something that is a reality for this industry and has been and probably is today. The only difference between then and now is these guys, we have got the science is so clear now that they're not injecting themselves with needles. They are probably taking things that are so advanced we can't even detect them. How is, like, seriously, Larry, how is Edge wrestling? I'm not going to cast aspersions on the guy. And if this is what he wants to do, this is what he wants to do. But you're telling me that Edge isn't doing anything to himself to be able to wrestle because I just, I don't believe it. I do not believe that a 46-year-old man can heal as well as he did through, through natural means. I just don't believe it. And that's not a criticism. That's not me saying that Ed should not be a wrestler, that you should boycott WWE because of it. But it's just ridiculous that we're pretending like this is still not, like, that not steroids, but that these things are still not happening even today. Yeah, it's weird. So, you know, in the documentary, they talked about Hawk going to Japan and the Hell Warriors tag team with Kensuke Sasaki as the Power Warrior. And the one thing that they did not mention as it leads into the WCW return is Animal does make his return right before the WCW run. He comes back to Japan and he actually partners up with them for a little bit. So they don't talk about the reconciliation in Japan or the return to WCW before the WWF run. It seems like they've ignored WCW a lot in a lot of episodes where they could have brought them up. Yeah, but it just seems weird because, again, Animal's all pissed about him going to Japan and taking the gimmick and all that shit. 
And then he goes over there, and they have a little reconciliation. And I think they may have even, because they were billed as the Road Warriors as a trio, and I think they even worked possibly a handful of six-man tags. Money talks, clearly. But again, it's just weird that they don't mention that, because I guess uh, you can't make uh, Animal look bad in this. No, Animal very clearly had a lot of influence over this. And then again, the other thing that kind of bothered me is, he was pissed when Hawk went to Japan and he had done all kind of interviews where he talked about how he would never destroy the road warriors legacy. But you know, there's no talk of that 2005 time frame when he and Heidenreich were the fucking Legion of doom in WWE. And there's no talk of the 2008 to 2014 ish time frame when animal went back to Japan and made the Hell Warriors with the fucking Power Warrior, who he allegedly hated. I completely forgot that Animal and Heidenreich was a thing. I'm sorry. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I probably had just about wiped that from my memory, but now it's back. So thanks, Larry. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, everybody. God, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, Animal's a hypocrite. And uh, I don't like him. I He came across as being very unlikable and completely uninteresting. And that is the kiss of death if you're going to be on a documentary. You either have to be extremely likable or you have to be entertaining. He was neither. And that's why this documentary, ultimately, I think this was by far the worst of the season. Yeah, I I watched it and I'm like, there were parts of it. I'm like, okay. It's like, again, I know these documentaries are not made for me because I know a lot of the history of this. It's made for the regular viewer of Vice TV. I know a lot of the stuff. And as I'm going on, it's like, I thought at times, you know, again, like you said, Scott Norton is great. I thought Nikita Koloff and Barry Darso had some good things from time to time, but this was very much the, Joe Laurinaitis animal road warrior animal version of history. And you brought up Bohemian Rhapsody a while ago, and that was actually a great comparison because you know, the victors write the history at the end, brother, and he's the last one standing. And I don't know what else to say. He's, I've heard so many interviews with him over the years. I have, I love the road warriors as a tag team. I will go back and watch roadie squashes all day long. I, I used to mark out as a young lad when they'd come out to Iron Man just killing geeks, but as a person, I do not have a lot of like for Joe Laurinaitis. I think he's full of shit most of the time. Um, and then, there, like you said, there were a lot of problems in terms of pacing with this. Um, pacing, inaccuracies, skipping over certain things. And it's just, I felt not only from a content perspective, but just an overall execution one, it made it the weakest one of the season. So it was kind of like a a combo platter for me of why it didn't succeed where the other ones did. Yeah, I think this this episode in particular was the realization of all the concerns that I had about, because I was very concerned that this was going to be what we got, and that's it is what we got, and it's really unfortunate because I think that there is a really interesting story to be told about Animal and Hawk at this point. And it just feels like this is something, this is something that I would expect WWF or WWE to do 
and produce a documentary like this where they don't talk about steroids and they ignore all this stuff. They ignore their WCW run. But no, this is in fact something that was not produced by WWE. And again, if you are going to talk about, you're going to go through this, the idea of this is the dark side of the ring. You have to talk about all the dark things or you just have to do a fluff piece. But don't pretend and don't misrepresent what you're doing because the thing that I don't want people to to walk away from this documentary is to think that this te- this tag team only self-destructed because of Hawk's behavior because I don't think that's the case. I think there I, I don't know I can't I can't speak to animals drug use and how bad it was. Very clearly not as bad as Hawk's. But to pretend like he is completely innocent in all of this is utterly ridiculous and I, I don't know. I mean, I know the documentaries get compromised all the time. I know The Last Dance was done in in cooperation with Michael Jordan's production company, and that is certainly a, a compromised documentary. And this is going to be an issue that comes up when it comes to dealing with issues of access. But if you're going to do something like this and you're not going to tell the truth, then it deserves to be called out by by reviewers and journalists and other people of that sort. I mean, I, I because I think it's irresponsible to, to, to have a 45-minute documentary about the Road Warriors and not mention steroids. Same thing for Dino Bravo. I feel very similarly about that. And, you know, I think it's really unfortunate because people are starting to watch this season in, in far greater numbers. You mentioned the linear ratings. I'm sure that even more people are watching it through the through Vice's streaming app as well. Yeah, and the so, other thing too is you have to you have to remember they're also airing the next week. They air those extended versions of them too, so they're like they they get the initial rating of two to close to three hundred thousand, and then they do like those um extended versions are doing anywhere from like seventy to another hundred and fifty. So the yeah they're getting watched a lot more than season one, plus like you said online viewing and streaming and all that. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping, I, I think with Martha Hart's involvement, I think next week is probably going to be better if for no other reason than WWF is going to get dragged to the coals and they, pro- and they, and they, they deserve it. I think Martha Hart, whatever she has to say, I think is far more relevant because I mean, what, what was done to her husband was objectively wrong. And there's almost no way that I would have an issue with almost anything that she says. Agreed. So, yeah, this one, unfortunately, not not a good one in my view. Not one of the better ones of the season. It's definitely at the kind of bottom of the pile for me. And I think it, again, you are talking about the road wars, but unfortunately you got Joe Laurinaitis being the Brian May of the group here, and he did nothing wrong. And I quite honestly would have really liked for this to be I would have liked for them to take in a different path with this instead of focusing on the Road Warriors. I really would have liked for this to be more like a, an episode titled something like The Fall of Road Warrior Hawk. To where they could have briefly talked about the rise of the team and then focused on him because it was his issues that ended up destroying the team and then ultimately himself. Because yeah. if, because if Real you're... quick. Because if you're not going to dig into the fucking animal side anyway then you don't need him fucking just like jacking himself off and putting himself over without taking any accountability. Yeah. I mean, you're better off just doing five minutes of road warrior history and then fast forwarding basically to 1998 and kind of going from that angle forward. It's focusing a lot of your attention on that stuff. I mean, you're just better off 
doing that because that's that's clearly what they were most interested in anyway is just talking and focusing on Hawk. Yeah, at the very least, you, you do the quick roadies recap and then you jump to the WWF run in SummerSlam 92 and go from there. Either way, I just think it would have made for a mo- more coherent documentary and a better show. So, unfortunately, not one of our favorites, uh, Jerome. And um, next week is the Big Owen Hart Show to close out Season 3. And uh, I believe we're going to get the on-camera debuts of Owen Hart's children. And that's going to be very, that's going to be a hard watch. It will be. So next time we are together, Jerome and I will talk about the Owen Hart Dark Side of the Ring. We will also throw out some um, personal recommendations for um, Season 3 of what we might like to see them tackle. But before I wrap up, Jerome, please give a shout out to all your other podcasting endeavors that are not with me because you don't love me all the time. No, I don't love you all the time, Larry, but <laughs> I, I, you have my full and undivided attention when we do talk. So that's that's what you have to so I can take into account. Uh, so, yes, you could follow me at Jerome C. 1985. All of my other podcasts are at Enter the Real World. So you can follow them on Twitter at uh, The Real World, EnterTheRealWorld.com. The podcasts I do, you can go check out Superhero Pantheon. This week we reviewed Captain Marvel. Next week we will be reviewing Spider-Man Far From Home. And I also do a Breaking Bad podcast. You can check out the archives. We have reviewed the first 4.5 seasons of that show. And you can go uh, check that out as well. So EnterTheRealWorld.com is the place where you can find all of my other podcasting endeavors. And Larry, I'm very much looking forward uh, to our last week talking about Dark Side of the Ring. That's right. And uh, Jerome, we had already talked. Do you want to let everybody know that you are actually going to stick around after we're done with Dark Side of the Ring? Yes, uh, I'm very excited that uh, there's more content for some documentary type content for us to review as we will be discussing the Undertaker docuseries. It's coming out in five parts. They're doing a really weird release schedule. So we're just going to wait until we could do five straight weeks of just talking about that docuseries. So in two weeks, we will be talking about part one, three weeks, part two, so on and so forth. And we'll be caught up and uh, talking about The Undertaker and his Blue Lives Matter shirt that he wore throughout the docuseries. There you go. So that is going to wrap us up. Big thanks to Jerome, as always. This has been the 411 on Wrestling Podcast. You can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, the 411mania.com website, and any major podcasting platform. Please make sure to subscribe to our show, share us around on social media, and if you have time, leave us a five-star review on the podcasting platform of your choosing. Stay safe, everybody, and wash your damn hands.